to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. 
live on Blog Talk Radio, SHRMZ, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, YouTube, Structure, Spread, up the heck with it, <laughs> on all those other places. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio chickadee, Annie, along with Curtis, the courageous C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we're starting off on a good foot today. We really are. <laughs> That is good. That is so good. I I wasn't here last week, but um, I'm glad to be back. And I must say that we enjoyed um, the event we put on. That would be former Congress, state congressman Mike Kill, um, Bobby and Kyan Michaels, and um, also K. Carl Smith. So we had a great time. And um, hopefully we can continue to um, enlighten others about our party and our values and our beliefs. So I'm glad to be back today. Well, I had to take my husband over for a CAT scan this morning. This was all last minute. So I'm a little behind in getting everything set up. But now I do have everything set up on YouTube and Facebook. So those that want to watch over on YouTube and Facebook, I've got it up and running right now. (sighs) Take a deep breath, Annie. Take a deep breath. Uh, we are now also on GERN Radio, uh, Global Enlightenment Radio Network, with our friend Daryl Neely, who will be joining us a little bit later. And Daryl's the gentleman who stood in for you last week, and he's the one that is carrying our show. Now, I know that those of you that were trying to listen in last week were having a hard time on Blog Talk Radio. It's one of the reasons why we are going to be migrating off this platform over the next few weeks. Um, We will be here because it's going to take about a couple of weeks for me to get the Internet speed I need installed. Uh, I got the first part of the equipment today, but that doesn't (laughs) mean I'm going to be having it up and running today. Uh, Anyway, we will be going. Yeah. So actually, you'll be able to go directly onto my website. And you can then listen on whichever platform you choose, whether it's on Restream, on uh, YouTube, Facebook, or just watching on my page, uh, uh, on Daryl's page for Global Enlightenment Radio Network, or G-E-R-N. Uh, he'll, he'll tell everyone how to get to his, his website. Um, but it's, it's a great thing because we went from having just – a couple hundred, a couple thousand listeners. Our first broadcast on Daryl's network gave us on just his network alone 69,000 unique live listeners. Do you hear that, CNN? <laughs> I'm getting more than Al Sharpton. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a big step for us. Uh, one of the things that we will be doing is that when they look at our video, uh, they will now be able to, not today, not today, but when we do have everything up and running in the next couple of weeks, they will be able to see it um, in a format very similar to what you see on most of the other TV stations. You'll see live side-by-side video in real time. Uh, me talking to you, Curtis, uh, talking to Daryl, talking to all of our guests, because uh, they will now be camera-to-camera, peer-to-peer broadcast. So forget about all this middleman and stuff in the between. It'll be uh, clean and neat. We tried doing a test on this uh, this past Wednesday, and unfortunately, Curtis, you got kicked off. (laughs) 
<laughs> I sure did. Uh, fortunately, I didn't put yeah, on any I... makeup for the cameras that day. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been sick. Makeup? Off. What's makeup? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we, we we figured out what was going right and what was going wrong. And we'll run a couple more tests before we go full live with it. I have a gentleman out of Hollywood that is working with me. And he ran through what his equipment he's using and what I need to do to mine. Now, I've got what I need. It's just I have to get a different Internet provider here that ups my speed. Um, it's good for something like this, like blog talk radio, something that doesn't require great speeds. Um, it's good for me doing the video that I have going on to Facebook and YouTube because it doesn't require the more power and capacity. But when you do it and you're having a video call coming in, and forget about Zoom. It's not on Zoom. It's not on Skype. This means that if you want to really watch it, you would have to go directly to my website or as I rebroadcast it through Restream onto YouTube and Facebook and anywhere else, um, you will see lead real-time video and good, clean, crisp camera work. I mean, really fantastic. So we're, I told you folks over the last couple of months that I was getting really ticked off and I wanted to up my game. Well, this is it. The game is being upped. It, the pieces are falling into place. So over the next couple of weeks, we will have it up and fully running, Curtis. You'll be amazed. Yeah. You'll be absolutely amazed. Sounds like a, a very sophisticated platform we, we're moving to. Yeah, because uh, then I can import um, whiteboards. I can import video clips. Um, there's a lot of things that I can do. Um, even as I'm looking at a web page, I can capture it and throw it onto the screen immediately instead of going through a bunch of hoops and bells and whistles and stuff. And uh, some of these, you know, you can only take two callers. You can only take four callers. This one gives me a lot a lot more leeway. I can take up to eight callers at the same time. Can you believe that? Wow. That this this will have the capacity to do that. Even though I don't want to do that. I have done it on Blog Talk, but you, not with the video, <laughs> just with the audio yeah. only. But, but can you imagine? Sound like oh, one of them old party lines. Remember the party <laughs> lines from the 70s? <laughs> 70s? 70s. Ours went back to the 50s and 60s. Ah oh, man! Okay. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go back that far. <laughs> the age of myself. But yeah, the oh, 60s man. party march. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had one in our house until my mom had to call nine one one, and some women were yakking on it. And <laughs> next thing I know, the what? party line was gone. And we had we were the one of the first houses on the block with a dedicated phone line. <laughs> Everyone was going, "How did you do that?" Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my sister, I don't know if she swallowed something or what she did, but my mom needed 911 real quick. And <laughs> yeah. We got a dedicated phone line the next day. Anyway, we got ourselves a great show lined up. Um, we've got Josh Perry, who's a friend of yours. Uh, he's a Republican and conservative campaign strategist, uh, a public speaker and a writer. Um, he'll be joining us uh, at the 2 o'clock hour. Then we have Stefan Williford. Now, if people don't remember that name or it rings a bell in the back of their head, if you remember back to November 5th of 2017, there was a shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas at the First Baptist Church. And there was a gentleman uh, 
who heard the shots, his daughter, and he heard the shots. He grabbed his gun, ran into the church, and confronted the shooter. So a good guy with a gun took out a bad guy with the gun. That is Stephen. Stephen Williford. I remember that. Now a, yeah, he is the spokesman for the Second Amendment Foundation as well as for the NRA. Uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, we also have Dr. Michael C. Grayson. Um, he is a gentleman out of New York. Uh, because of medical reasons, he ended up racking up $1.5 million in debt. And he learned how to keep his good credit rating. He did it the hard way. And he's built a business around this to teach people, especially during this COVID pandemic, if you still want to call it that, how many people have lost their good credit ratings because they've lost their jobs. Um, he tells you how to get it back and how to maintain it. And um, this is something that's going to be new starting in July. Uh, the Epic Times or the Epoch Times, depending upon how you want to pronounce it, both ways are correct, will be sending us Mark Tapscott twice a month, and he's going to be doing at the top of the hill. He's going to be talking what's going on in D.C., uh, legislation, personalities, whatever. Uh, he'll be doing a dedicated segment twice a month with us. Um, on the first and second Fridays of every month. And that will lead into our continuing with the Heritage Foundation. So today's Heritage Foundation guest is going to be Jonathan Butcher. He's the Will Skillman Fellow in Education. And we're going to be talking about the biggest topic coming across most of the news, wa- news, news waves, if I can get my teeth in straight, critical race theory and how there is now a final awakening of the American silent majority, realizing what is being drilled down our kids' throats. And, you know, this is really what ticks me off. They get the kids when they're really young and impressionable. And this is going to be something that's going to follow them through the rest of their lives. Mommy, Daddy, explain to me. Uh, And if you get these ideas in these kids uh, when they're very young like this, it's very hard to untrain them and teach them what a true American really is, how we see content of character, not the color of our skin. We have come so far in our nation's history, in, in the progression towards a true Americana, what our founding fathers really did envision for us. All men created equal, not only in the eyes of the law, but also recognizing it that we are all equal in the eyes of God first before we are recognized as equal by our government and our fellow man. So these are going to be a lot of things that we're going to be talking about, Curtis. we got a lot to go on. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Um, Now, if you were looking at the description, um, I do not believe the guests we had lined up, Willie Montague, would be able to join us. There seems to have been a conflict in his schedule. Uh, Something that he was supposed to be attending got moved up to an earlier hour, so he had to bow out of our show. Whether or not he'll be able to join us at a later date, we'll see. If we'll let him on, right, Curtis? Yeah, Yeah, I think we can work something (laughs) out. Yeah. All right. Those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. 
And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Dominic, Nikki, Jared Winham, if I hope I said that right, Winham, of the Stanley Police Department out of Virginia. His end of watch was Friday, February 26th of this year, 2021. And this is from DNR Online uh, by Jessica Weltzer. She's with the Daily News Record out of Stanley. And it reads, it doesn't feel real. Elkland Police Sergeant Lynette Campbell kept repeating those words as she stood outside the Stanley Police Department headquarters that morning. The day after five-year department veteran Dominic Nick Winham, 48, was killed in the line of duty during an afternoon traffic stop. This small town of less than 2,000 residents tucked against the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains mourned. Joining it were officers from the tight-knit Shenandoah Valley law enforcement community and, of course, the Commonwealth. It's hard to believe, Campbell said. I didn't think I could cry anymore. According to the Virginia State Police, Wynnum stopped the suspect identified as Dakota G. Richards, 29, also of Stanley, in the 600 block of Judy Lane on Friday. Before Wynnum exited his patrol car, the driver got out of his vehicle and opened fire at approximately 3.15 p.m., according to police. Wynnum died at the scene. According to the Virginia State Patrol, law enforcement personnel responded to the scene and assisted with tracking Richards, who fled into the nearby woods. He was later located hiding in a barn in the 700 block of Marksville Road. There, Richards made a threatening movement and was shot by Page County Sheriff deputies, police say. Richards died of his injuries. The Virginia State Police investigated the incident. The following day was filled with grief and pain in the town located roughly 40 miles from Harrisonburg. There was no better man. Campbell said after dropping off blue roses outside the Stanley Police Station. Roses were tied together with a white ribbon and a card was stapled on tissue paper. R.I.P. Rest in peace, Nick. We will never forget you. Love, your brothers and sisters at Elkin PD. For hours, people dropped off bouquet of flowers, cards, and blue Lives Matter signs in remembrance of Wynnum. His badge number 202 coded the town on signs. Boxes of Dunkin' Donuts courtesy of the Chesterfield County Police Department and a tub of Edie's slow-churned vanilla ice cream, two of Wynnum's favorites according to a close friend, were set on the steps outside the police department. Before noon, one visitor taped a Virginia State Police patch to the window of the Stanley Police Department. It was from the Virginia State Trooper, Brandon Tester, who received his field training from Wynnum when he was with the Virginia State Patrol. I was very close with him, he said. Tester stood on the edge of the sidewalk for several minutes in silence. Like many, he found it difficult not to get emotional when seeing the stacks of flowers get higher as each person paid their respects. Tester 
wasn't only someone who worked with William, but a neighbor and a family friend, who was really a great guy and a great officer, he said. Tester, who said he was on his way to visit William's family, said the former Virginia State Police Trooper was very proactive in policing and treated everyone with respect, as if they were a fellow officer. Taping the patch, which went more on the sleeve for 10 years before joining the Stanley Police Department in 2016 to the window, was a fitting honor for a good guy and a good officer. He will be missed, Tester said. Stanley Police Chief Ryan Dean visited the memorial briefly, but expressed wishes not to be interviewed. In a statement shared on the town's Facebook page, Dean said, Since joining our department in 2016, he proudly served and protected the Stanley community. I know the Stanley and Page County community are keeping Nick and his family in their prayers during this most difficult and tragic time. The Page County Sheriff's Office also issued a statement on its Facebook page. We have no words. Please pray for the family of our fallen brother the Stanley Police Department, and our law enforcement family. Terry Pettit, chief of the Stanley Volunteer Fire Department and town manager, could not be reached for comment. Nearly 24 hours after the fatal incident, a GoFundMe page was started to help raise funds to cover Wyndham's funeral expenses. As of that Saturday evening, more than 16000 had been raised. Elected officials shared their condolences on various social media platforms and asked for prayers to the community they represent. My heart aches for the family of Officer Nick Winham, who was tragically killed in the line of duty. State Senator Mark Woods. He was later located hiding... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. State Senator Mark Obershane. Republican out of Rockingham said on Twitter, he was a faithful public servant. Delegate Todd Gilbert, Republican out of Mount Jackson, said on a Twitter post, thank you, sir, for your faithful service. U.S. Representative Ben Klein at a photo tort also shared his sympathies to Williams family and the Stanley Police Department on Twitter. The show of support was not lost on Tester, it's a good feeling to see all of this, Tester said. It is humbling. A statement by the town of Stanley Police Chief Ryan Dean. It was with heavy hearts this evening that we must inform our community of the line of duty death of one of our own, Officer Dominic Nick J. Winham, 48. Since joining our department in 2016, he proudly served and protected the Stanley community. I know the Stanley and Page County community are keeping Nick and his family in their prayers during this most difficult and tragic time. Officer Wynnum was fatally shot this afternoon while attempting a traffic stop in the town of Stanley. Thanks to the immediate response of his fellow Stanley police officers and the Luray Police Department, Page County Sheriff's Office, Warren County Sheriff's Office, and the Virginia State Police, The suspect shooter was tracked to and taken into custody in a field off Marksville Road. There is no additional threat to the community this evening.
Officer Widom leaves behind his wife, his four grown children, and a newborn grandchild. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Widom. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, emergency services. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and to our hopeful future. We dedicate to all of them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and All right. 
And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, Restream, oh, good Lord, iHeartRadio, and half a dozen other places I forget. Anyway, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And um, why am I getting feedback into my ear? I don't know what the heck is going on. Anyway, I'm not sure. um, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Oh, man. Oh, yep. Let's try that. I am back in on a job. Yep. We are all back and on the job. So yeah. I just have to make sure I mean, we on all the other outlets. There we go. There we go. There. I, was I mean, the left, they, they really don't give you a day off. <laughs> They're always up to something, no, so you gotta I, constantly be vigilant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, Daryl should be joining us shortly. He was in the car when he called me just about fifteen minutes before going on air, and he was trying to get back home. <laughs> he was yelling at people as he was driving. That's really good and safe, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you'll. Some of you uh, heard Daryl last week. Some of you, unfortunately, because the the glitches with Blog Talk Radio, didn't get to hear the show. So I apologize for that. But uh, uh, it's, it's going to be an issue that Blog Talk Radio and I are going to have a good sit down with, as if it's going to matter. Uh, they don't care. They, they they want these nice liberal progressive shows. They don't care about us anymore. And yet we were the meat and potatoes that got them off the ground. Anyway, um, we will be, like I said, going with the newer format in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we did a dry t- test and figured out what we need to do to get it up and running. So we have a couple more things we've got to tweak before we have it really good. Um, anyway, welcome to everyone that's listening in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio as well as up on Facebook and uh, YouTube. Uh, man, I mean, Curtis, where do we even get to start with some of the stuff that is going on out there? But, you know, th- there's, there's something that I saw that had me very, very hopeful. This came across the wires last night. Two things. Um, this was listed in the Epic Times, which, you know, I get there push notices whenever a new article is put up there, is that uh, the Supreme Court ruled just yesterday that a Catholic foster agency in Philadelphia was free to turn away same-sex couples as foster parents on the grounds of religious freedom. Now, you would think this would be a 5-6, you know, a 5-4 split or something like that. This was a 9-0 yeah, unanimous, unanimous. 9-0 ruling. Yeah. Which I, I was, was completely very, surprised. Very interesting. Yeah, that they they ruled on the side of religious freedoms. And they said it was in violation of the First Amendment, not just only their freedom of speech, but their freedom of religion. The free expression so thereof. And the good. government... 
Right. So, you know, you, you look at that and you say, oh, man, finally, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, in which Catholic social services sued the city after being ordered not to exclude same-sex couples for certification as foster parents. That same day, and this was over in the Daily Patriot report, a Colorado court ruled against Masterpiece Cake Shop. Now, if you remember this guy, Jack uh, Phillips, he's the baker who refused to do a same-sex wedding cake. He says, no, it, it, you're in violation of my religious beliefs. I will give, sell you the cake. I will sell you the decorations and you put it together yourself. You know, the cake will be iced, but, you know, you put whatever you want on it. I, but I'm not going to write that on there. And the courts ruled against him. Now, and, you know, this is a complete setup because obviously they went after this guy twice. This person who is an attorney, Autumn Scardina, sued Phillips earlier this year for refusing to bake a cake in honor of Scardina's transition. So this is a gender transition celebration. And he goes, well, if I wouldn't bake a cake for same-sex couples, why would I do one for you? It's still in violation of my religious beliefs. Now, this is a, a ruling in a Colorado court. On the heels of what just happened in the Supreme Court in support of religious liberty. So I can see this going straight up to the Supreme Court. Now, I haven't pulled it off in my printer, but it's in the printer behind me. This article came up on the Epic Times today that the IRS ruled against a um, religious group, a church, because they prayed for politicians and public figures. And the IRS deemed in their ruling that it was in support since most Republic. of the Christians in their, in their reasoning, conservative Christians Republican in their reasoning, Party, people that yeah. pray belong to the Republicans. So you're basically praying for only Republicans. So that violates the IS, IRS rules. Hmm. Pretty presumptuous. Really? Right. Now, I'm just, just bear with me as I go over to my printer to pull up the rest of the article. Just bear with me. All right. So, they do have an attorney that's going to be fighting on their behalf. All right. And let's see. It was a Texas group that encourages church members to pray for state and national leaders, quote, regardless of their party affiliation, because it benefits, and this is what the IRS says, because it benefits the private interests of the Republican Party. They said, and this is what they wrote to them, and the person that wrote this is the director of the IRS Office of Exempt Organizations, Rulings, and Agreements. This person's name is Stephen A. Martin. In his May 18th letter said, you do not qualify as an organization described in the IRS Section 501c3. You engage in prohibited political campaign intervention. All right. You are also not operated exclusively for one or more exempt purposes within the meaning of Section 501c3 because you operate for a substantial non-exempt private purpose party. Now, 
The Tea Party is a reference to the Republican Party, according to a novel legend that Martin provided at the top of his letter to the Texas group. Uh, The letter was made public two days ago on June 16th by the First Liberty Institute, a Plano, Texas-based public interest law firm that specializes in religious freedom. Now, they're going to be going after them and saying that um, hang on a second. I'm trying to. All right, here we go. In the appeal letter, the First Liberty said by finding that Christians engaged does not meet the operational test, Director Martin errors in three ways. One, he invents a non existent requirement that accepts organizations be neutral on public policy issues. Now, there really is no law that says a preacher from the pulpit cannot talk about public policy issues such as same-sex marriage, uh, transgenderism, um, abortion, things like it, it, it's It's being taught. It, it's in the Bible. These things are, well, they didn't know about transgenders back then that you could do those things, but it, it's directly addressed in the Bible. Uh, two, he incorrectly concludes that Christians engaged primarily serves private, non-exempt purposes rather than public exempt purposes because he thinks its beliefs overlap with the Republican Party's policy positions. Now, that's, that's saying that anyone that's a member of the Democratic Party cannot be a Christian. Well, will someone tell <laughs> Joe Biden, who's supposed to be a devoutly Catholic individual, that he's not a Christian? Will someone please tell us that? Or the right, the right Reverend Wright? Uh, and number three, he violates the First Amendment's free speech and free exercise and the Establishment Clauses by engaging in both viewpoint discrimination and religious discrimination. I see this going all the way up to the Supreme Court, too. So you look at the oh, Supreme yeah. Court ruling that just came across and now these other two court cases, uh, I see things turning towards religious liberty and freedom. I see the worm turning, don't you? Yep, but I'm going to tell you one case that troubles me. And it's, and what's it's that? a Second Amendment issue. The couple that um, defended their profit, property when they, mm-hmm. you know, their community was being invaded, I, I saw headlines that they pleaded guilty. Um, to a misdemeanor, not a felony. To a misdemeanor. That, that you would have to, to to go that far in defending your property, which you have a, a right to do so, it's just ludicrous that it, it should even go to, you know, uh, a court. Don't you think? I mean... It should be clear cut. They were threatened. Their home was about to be destroyed. I mean, this was a mob scene. And who should get arrested? These guys, not the troublemakers. So, you know, they got a lot of exposure in the media. But what if you weren't, you know, in a position to be, you know, your case be seen by all Americans? They could really put you in jail and Nobody ever hear from you again, you know, because you don't have the means and well, and, and the, the the exposure to to do 
what they did, and and still they had to um, plead guilty to a lesser charge. Well, uh, the guy, Mikulski, Mark Mikulski, was on uh, Newsmax yesterday, and he and Patricia, <clears throat> his wife, explained they pleaded guilty to charges um, because the prosecutor dropped all the felony charges and all the gun charges, and they charged him with a crime that said, I purposely placed other people in apprehension of imminent fear of physical injury. And he said, and by God, I did it. His intent was to place them in imminent fear of physical injury because they are placing him and his wife and his property in imminent fear. Yeah, and what about the mob scene? So he was defending himself. And he said, the purpose of me standing there with the gun is telling them, if you're going to come and try to harm me, my wife, or my property, by God, I'm going to defend it with my Second Amendment right. So he said, yes, I'm going to plead to a Class C misdemeanor, a fourth-degree assault, while his Patricia misdemeanor of second-degree harassment. They paid fines of 2000 and another of 750 They won't serve any... Um, jail time, uh, but they will be forced to forfeit the weapons they were holding when they confronted the BLM right. protesters near their homes. Now, supposedly that means that he can still own firearms, but just not the two that they were holding on that date, as I understand it. And the, there is, a, uh, it's up on the Epic Times uh and, yeah, they, they have them up on the Epic Times. So if anyone, you know, pulls that up, uh, they'll see. So he said, you know, when they said that I placed them in fear of imminent injury, well, yeah, that's what I intended. So uh, what am I going to argue with, he said. And he was honest. But that was the intent of the Second Amendment. So it brings into question whether or not the law was – Applied appropriately. You understand? You understand? Yeah, I, I just the like people to know. that threatened them should be the ones that would yeah. be facing these charges. And there should be them, your stand your ground for your, 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 the Castle Doctrine. Because here we have your stand your ground and Castle Doctrine in South Carolina. I believe Florida is the same. Texas, I know it is. So that doctrine should have been applied to them. So the question then is, can their attorney then appeal the verdict and have it reversed? That's the new question. Now, what state did that happen in? Uh, this I was is, just I curious believe, Missouri. if they had to stand your ground. Well, you know, we're going to have, like I said, Stephen Williford uh, on the uh, show later on so we can ask him that. Because, as I said, he's a spokesman for the NRA as well as the SAF, the Second Amendment Foundation organization. Um, he'll be on towards the end of the show. So, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot here to, to 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 think about. You know, when we when we have a situation like this, this woke society, and you know, he's running for Senate. Mikulski, Mark Mikulski, is running for the Senate for the Senate seat in his. Uh, in his state, and I, I I see him as being a senator real soon. <laughs> Good. 
Oh man. Oh man. Some of the stuff you just you just really can't make up. You know. And uh we're gonna be talking with um uh Jonathan Butcher about critical race theory, but you know, we've we've got so much woke speak going on and it's it's making people's heads start to spin. You know, the political correctness has actually gone amok. It has actually gone amok. When you have a teacher, uh, not in his teaching capacity, address a public forum as a citizen and a voter, be fired from his teaching job because he refuses to let children choose their pronouns. He will call a boy a boy, a girl a girl. And that that is his religious belief. You're either one or the other. That's how God made us. And he got fired from his teaching position, but a judge turned around and says, nope, you got to hire him back. And you cannot prohibit him from ex- exercising his full religious beliefs. Like I said, the worm is starting to turn. So, you know, the people are starting to say, yeah, the political correctness. These, these safe zones, these special pronouns, no, 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 no. Um, I mean, there are times I go into certain stores, you know, to do things, and you will see someone, you're looking at them like, is that a boy or a girl? Um, I, I'm not sure how to address. Well, that, you know, and it, it leaves you wondering but, you know, you, you, you politely dodge around it and walk around it and then, you know, okay, fine, whatever. And you go on your merry own little way. But what the woke society is doing is like, you no longer are allowed to dodge it. They're going to be in your face and they're going to say, I demand you to do X, Y, Z. And that's where everything goes wrong. You know, if I turn around and say, all right, fine, whatever, walk away. And they go running after you and says, no, 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 I demand you call me miss or or she or sheep or dipshit. Excuse my language. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when, when they demand you to change your viewpoints to meet theirs, there's something wrong with us. Instead of recognizing the uniqueness of every single individual and accepting every single individual as unique and different, no, no, no. You have to accept everything I think, and you must think the way I think. You're not allowed to have your own individual thoughts, likes, dislikes, preferences. I tell you what you are going to like and how you are going to behave. And oh, by the way, simply because you're born the color of your skin, I'm going to automatically assume that you think and act this way. Therefore, you must apologize to me for the rest of my life. Something's wrong here, Curtis. Something is wrong with the way of thinking. Well, all right. And we are basically a society that we're we're destroying ourselves. We're destroying ourselves. Yep, we are. I. When I, I deal with those on the left, family members and friends, I tell them, because they're so supportive of the Democrat Party, I tell them, you know, just watch and see, you know. Um, liberals will never, uh, well, they used to 
try to hide what their true agenda was. And it wasn't until after they got in to power that they showed you what their agenda was about. Uh, today, they have been so emboldened that they're upfront with it, even while they're campaigning. I mean, just look at um, Bernie Sanders and being a socialist and things like that. But um, the thing about the Democrats, whether they upfront with it or they come out with it later, when people see the results of their failed policies, then they have buyer's remorse. And I think the same thing happened during the Obama years. And I think that's why um, we won both houses um, when we had a chance to during the midterms of um, Obama's um, years in office. And I think the same thing's going to happen um, in 2022. We're going to see how bad the policies have been that the um, left has put out there. And there's going to be buyer's remorse. And those on our side would be fired up anyway. So I think we well, really have a good chance of regaining the House and the Senate so we can put the brakes on put the brakes on their, their agenda. Well, you know, um I I I'm gonna say his name wrong. Uh Senator Bar oh good Lord. Is this Senator Barassa? Uh he has put into place he has openly said what we are going to do in this midterm election, we are going to work avidly to take back the House and the Senate. We are going to work to put as many Republicans into the seats as possible. So they're going to start with this upcoming November election. Uh, now, I've been seeing also people going out there because of this critical race theory being thrust upon a lot of school districts and by the federal government. The, the Biden administration has put out this thing with you will get federal funds by putting out there the critical race theory in the state, the state and the local municipality will get additional federal funds for teaching critical race theory. But parents are in an uproar, and they're going to say, oh, it's my school board is putting that in the school, and they're hiding it. For, and this is the whole thing. They're hiding it. They're hiding it. Uh, they said, we as parents are going to run against the other school board, sitting school board members, and we will unseat you, and we will take our school district, district back, and that stuff will go out the window. Um, there are states, uh, South Carolina, I know, has legislation they've written to ban critical race theory being taught. Uh, it, and it will actually pull funding off of any school district that does violate the legislation. Uh, there are states across the board. I believe there are now currently 11 states with active legislation banning critical race theory. And the number is growing. We have to be aware. And this is the, this is the most important thing. Because we've got to tell our kids, if you see something like this going on in the classroom and you've got your cell phone, record it. Record it. That happened recently with a teacher um, promoting her idea of a sexual fluidity with these unicorn cupcakes. And this one kid was just not buying it. He says, well, this is not what my faith teaches me. This is not what my church is teaching me and what, I, what I'm learning in Bible class. And she cursed the kid out. Here you've got a kid, 
I think he was, what, 10 or 11 years old, being cursed mm-hmm. out by his teacher in front of the entire class, being told he's stupid. Well, one of the other students recorded it as she went on her rampage, and that teacher thankfully has been fired. So we have to turn around and say, listen, show me what is being taught to you in school. Because a lot of these teachers are being told, hide the material. Don't let it out of the classroom. Do not put it up on the, the websites. Do not put it up on social media. Parents should, don't need to know that we are teaching this thing. And then the kids go home confused. Well, who is, my, who is the th- authority I should be listening to? The teacher that is hiding stuff from my parents or my parents are asking me what's going on? And you have a child now in, in complete confusion. Who is the authority figure that that child needs to lean on? It should be the parent. Parents should be going up to the teacher and saying, yes, you've asked me to send my child to you to be taught. I have entrusted my child for these hours per day to your care because you went to school, you got the degree, you had the certificate saying that you're certified on the subjects to teach my child. And I'm assuming that I know what subjects you're teaching, but obviously I don't, so show me. And the parent does not get to see what the child is being taught. Something is really wrong here. (laughs) Something is really, really wrong. Again, now the child's put in the middle. Yeah. It smacks of those closed societies, you know, that we read so much about in our past, like the Soviet Union and uh, Nazi Germany. And it's just, you know, unbelievable that such things could be happening here um, in the land of freedom. I mean, this is the place people run to when they're trying to escape that kind of life. And here we are, um, well, we have some members of, of our society that are trying to um, make us, you know, like those um, closed societies. So I, I see a rebellion in the making and one we have not seen since probably the Civil War because there's passion um, that's out of control on both sides. But um, sometimes you just have to fight fire with fire and rise to the occasion and stand your ground and do what is right, you know, for the country and our preservation. So I hope we still can do it, you know, diplomatically through our election process, but we need to, I think we do need to get out there like the civil rights um, marchers and, 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 and state our case in numbers, great numbers. Well, what we have allowed done, or I should say, you know, the generations before is, you know, assuming that the wheels of this nation would continue on as they always have and that the rule of law would exist and the Constitution would be respected and our basic fundamental freedoms would remain intact. And that was very foolish. And our our generations before us, they assumed, we assumed, and now we're finding out that, oh, wow, wait a minute, I think we all made a big mistake. But slowly and surely, I see little hints of things turning with the parents revolting against critical race theory. Uh, 
uh, with now news stations starting to say, wait a minute, I think there's a problem here. People are now starting to question it, critical race theory. We also now have a legislation being put forward by Senators uh, Cotton, uh, Tim Scott, and several others. Uh, they're saying, wait a minute, we're seeing most of the problems going on in today's society originally emerged with us allowing liberalism in our schools, in our universities, and it crept from the universities all the way down through K-12, to especially with the, the, the growing of these Confucius schools. Look at this, because I've, I've made this comment many before, and I said I've asked some of our guests if there is a direct correlation between the Communist Party and Russian interference Communism in Black Lives Matter, fascism and links to the Muslim Brotherhood, how much how much similarity there is in that one. Uh, when we saw the Antifa riots in Berkeley back in, what was it, 2014, 2015, how much it, rep- it, 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 it re- resembled, okay, let's get that word out, how much it resembled the 1930s Nazi brown boots. Brown shirts. Um, the the correlation between fascism and the KKK. Wondering how much foreign interference has helped us destroy ourselves from within. So these senators have gone forward and they said every single educational institution. We're going to ask if you received any foreign money, and right now the federal. Guideline is quarter million dollars. If you got any of these funds from a foreign entity, who they are, what is it for, and what are you doing with it? And they're finding a large influence of communist China and Putin's Russia putting into our institutions, especially with the Confucius schools that are on the K through 12. Uh, communism is being taught to our kids. And where does critical, critical theory come from? Marxism. Critical theory was formulated by Marxists. So when the rise of communism came, it was based upon critical theory. But it was based upon class, not race. What they did said, they said, well, we don't seem to be uniting um, the workers well, if we throw the word race into the formula, oh, now we got something that can help divide America. Now, Curtis, I think this might be your friend, Josh. So let's bring the individual in onto the show. <laughs> and welcome to Josh Perry to Southern Sense. I am your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm hanging some drywall on this lovely Friday. How are you? <laughs> hey, I got some work over here. You want to come a couple states north? I'm over in South Carolina. Hey, I need we, some handyman work. <laughs> I'm sure we can figure it out. Hey, Josh. Hey, Curtis. How are you? All right. Well, man, we. I want you to introduce yourself uh, to our listeners uh, since you're the first time coming on the show, uh, Curtis only gave me a cursory description of you outside of saying that you're a fifth-generation Floridian. 
uh, political commentator, uh, campaign strategist, a speaker, writer, uh, MBA. Uh, he said, you're dedicated to common sense, so you're, you're at the right place because we're Southern sense. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. That's right. Well, I'm a fifth-generation Floridian. That means I was born with a flip-flop tan. Um, so I'm 32 years old, live here in Florida, good friends with Curtis, your co-host. I am a campaign uh, strategist. I've worked on Senate races, congressional races, and local county races, where I think it's the most important is your local county. <clears throat> so got an MBA, didn't have to go into debt for that. There's a lot of ways to, to – to do that, and then I survived college and grad school without becoming a socialist. And I started speaking out against <laughs> the socialist indoctrination in our universities and uh, campuses. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm slightly older than you, but at the time I went to college, I saw then, you know, the, the creeping in of liberalism. But back then, at least we could challenge the professors and have a healthy debate. And right. you know, a lot of that got me onto the debate society because they heard about how much I was challenging them and using good, clear, calm logic. You know, an 18-year-old kid going after a tenured you know, professor, you know, you don't do that, you know? <laughs> but right. you, know, you got the safe spaces. How dare you? Exactly. And, you know, conservative students are, are actually self-canceling themselves because they're afraid of – you know, vengeful professors who might fail them for the class. I know as a, to get my MBA, I would dance the line, but I knew that I had to write as a moderate in order to graduate um, because every single class for my MBA program, now this is just business and economics, every single class of the MBA, you had to write a capstone on how it was going to apply to social justice and how, do, how does the left define social justice? Anything that's going to further their cause to march us towards socialism. To yeah, they hate capitalism. They hate capitalism because capitalism means freedom. Because through capitalism, through free enterprise, I should correctly call it, you can lift yourself from any segment in society and become very successful and very happy. But no, you have to collapse the family, you have to collapse the church, and finally collapse capitalism so that socialism and communism will be the – and then it's total tyranny. And that's what they want. They exactly. want the power. They want power. Exactly. And how better – Exactly. Yep. While, they, while they profit from capitalism themselves as they offer online programs and your school tuition, they're getting paid in their pockets through capitalism – so that way they can usher in their political ideologies in our schools from kindergarten all the way through senior year of college and grad school, encroaching even into, as we've seen with COVID, into medical school indoctrination now. Um, so that way they can control everything and have a whole collective federal government that controls everything, a globalist ideology. But we're the, we're the conspiracy theorists, right? Yet we've all been validated for the last year and a half. Well, just before you came on, I was mentioning that uh, my state senator, Tim Scott, uh, Tom Cotton, and several others have authored new legislation that they're going to be proposing. And hopefully this midterm, they'll take over some more seats in the House and Senate um, where they're going to turn around to the colleges and say, you're getting foreign money. All right. Where it's coming from, who it's coming from, 
what is it for, and how are you using it? And they're finding large segments of these colleges, almost all of them, are getting money from communist China, from the Communist Party, as well as from Putin's communist Russia. I'm sorry, it's still communist. They may say it's, it's no longer communist. It still is. Um, they're saying you can they call it. In, go ahead. We can slice and dice it, and, you know, and talk about the different tenets between socialism, communism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism. At the end of the day, it's all the same thing. It's a collective group that wishes to control everyone else. Um, and so all of our activist groups, your, your mass cult, your LGBTQ mafia, your BLM organizations, your Marxists, they're all the boot grounds, the, the, ground, you know, the ground pounders for people at the top. But when, here's the thing about communism, though, is when the music stops, the people that help them get into power, they don't get to enjoy the feast at the table because they get marched off to the same gulags as well because they're seen as a threat to power. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they, they started these Confucius schools in, you know, the elementary schools. Uh, thankfully, in our state, they said, no, all right, you started. No, they're going. They're going. But this legislation also addresses the Confucius schools that are in the K through 12. So if we can take back our education system, we just might be able to preserve this republic. Where the true fight is won. You know, Republic, we as Republicans, and I, when someone says, are you a Republican, I say I'm worse. I'm a conservative, you know, and I know that word <laughs> is all, has been branded. Exactly. It's been branded by the left as you know, to mean white racist. But if you believe in the principles of conserving tradition, American Americanism, freedom, family, uh, the right to defend yourself from a tyrannical government, you're a conservative. If you believe in capitalism, <laughs> that if you have something and you say it's worth this, I have the choice whether or not I want to pay it. So I get determined before I fork out my own money, do I value it as that way? So if you believe in those freedoms and those principles, you're a conservative. Most people are more conservative than what they believe they are, but the Republicans are going to have a hard time winning presidential elections in the future every four years when every year you're graduating thousands of little socialists in the names of Marx and Lenin. Well, That's you know, right. I, I, I had a saying I used to say, I don't know whether that's going to be true anymore, but, you know, the difference between a liberal and a conservative you know, once you have kids and you need to dial 911, you're a liberal up to that point. But once you dial that 911 and you realize how much law and order really means and how your freedoms can be so precious, then you become a conservative. <laughs> Until you have kids, responsibility, and you need that law and order in place, you're a liberal. <laughs> but Exactly. So... There's going, to, there's going to be a rude awakening when these kids do grow up and finally realize what life is all about. It's not the little butterflies and bluebells that they're being taught. No, no, it's not. You know, um, there's thousands of people, thousands of students who go to school because they've been taught in, in, since they were in kindergarten that you shouldn't work with your back or sweat to earn a living. So they go and major in uh, studies like gender studies or cultural studies and things that doesn't really have a high market capital out, you know, when they graduate, so they can't find a job. So now they're stuck with thousands of dollars in debt and complaining that they've been screwed over, but they were the ones who signed the dotted line. And 
I, I do consider it a bait and switch. I'm 32 years old. That's what I was said my entire life. Hey, go to college. That's the only way you can make a living. It's not true. And thankfully, I majored in in things that actually were practical and could earn a living. But when you have the Democrat Party, which the federal federal government is subsidizing universities, so they're jacking the tuition up. Why? Because they know they're still going to get their money from the federal government. Who stuck with the loan? The student. And now the Democrat Party's over here saying, hey, look at us. Hear our bell as we ring it. We'll pay off your student debt. But we all know that free means tax paid. Yeah. Who's, who's going to pay the taxes? If you're not working, how are you going to be paying your taxes? So who's going to pay the taxes to pay for your loans? It's a snake that eats itself. It starts on its tail thinking it'll never reach the head, but sooner or later it swallows itself. And that's that. And once you do that, the entire society then collapses. But this is what they want. Once the society collapses, then they go clamoring on the door of government, save us, save us, save us, and you fall into total tyranny and enslavement. Look what the, Chi- the communist Chinese are doing to Christians, political dissidents, the Uyghurs, the Fulang Gang, for- forcing them into forced re-education camps, they call them, but forced labor. Slavery. By the way, it, they make Coca-Cola, they make Nike, uh, I believe Ford just sent a plant over there. So your forced labor are the things that you have in your house, the things that are stamped your made iPhone. in China. Yeah, your desktop, your laptop, your smart devices, your appliances. You start naming the number of things now made in China, no longer made in the USA, which were starting to come back. But thanks to crazy Uncle Joe, they're going right back to China again. Exactly. Even our pharmaceuticals are made in our biggest enemy's backyard. We're made in China, our pharmaceuticals. I mean, I don't know how crazy we can be. And I've had people say, you know, well, Josh, uh, I deserve this. Government should give us this. And I ask, what what money does government government make to give you anything? And what does – how does one who's a private citizen get elected into a public office? Is he now or she now all of a sudden immune from any type of wickedness or evil? No, now they've just got more power to carry out an agenda that they've already had internalized in their heart to do. Yeah, and you, as I've always said, politics starts locally. You got to start with your dog catcher, with your local yes. council, with your school board. Because once they're there, then they go up to the state level, from the state level to the federal level, and look what we got, crazy Uncle Joe in the White House and Queen yeah, Camilla Mella. Exactly. <laughs> so like and that for whatever reason. Queen Camilla Mella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so conservatives, for whatever reason, we lost the culture fight because we gave up on the schools. We gave up on the arts. We gave up on uh, the university. That was all started by us, by the by the Christians, by the conservatives. That was started by us, and we gave that up to the liberals. So we have to get back in that fight because by the time you take a kindergartner and he goes through five years of elementary school, public school, three years of public middle school, and then four years of public high school, and then four years of leftist indoctrination and a university, they're gone. You can't even, you can't even speak facts to them because now – you're offending everything they've ever been taught, and they don't want to be proven wrong. We have yeah, I've, I've always said we have to reclaim our schools 
Because that, we do. like you said earlier, is where they are turning out little Marxists and socialists and, and, and young people who who hate their country and, and think we're the problem behind all the world's other problems. And And I always said, I mean, if you hate your country so much, who's going to defend it when it needs defending, you know? And I, I really, I, I think about that, and I'm really fearful for our future if we continue down this, this road. Now, you you have been around politicians, Josh. Um, what What is their schedule like? I mean, what do they spend most of their time doing, campaigning still, or are, are they trying to enact laws or policies that will benefit the American people, or, or what? How, how does that work, their um, daily routine? <clears throat> so it depends on which office. So with with a House of Representatives, you know, you have an election every two years. That may mean you might get to spend eight months, six to eight months working on just your job, but then you've got to start planning the campaign again. Um, now, your good ones, they're working on preserving our Constitution, educating people on our Constitution, limiting government. Those are your good ones, but the good ones are far and few between, and that's because it ties back into what we were talking about education. Um, we just declared Juneteenth a national holiday, but what is it called? Juneteenth Independence Day Act. You know, Juneteenth is a highlight of the Democrat Party's failure to uphold the institution of slavery, yet they will teach it in schools through victimhood mentality that non-white Americans aren't American and they don't belong here and they must overtake the system. That's what the Democrat Party will teach, and that's what they're doing now. Uh, that was a little sidetrack off of that, but going back to your question, how do they operate the schedule? The schedules are very busy. Um, it almost seems like they have two minutes to use the bathroom. You know, then they have to hit this interview, <laughs> go toward this, go toward this work site. So your good ones, they try to be in their home districts as much as possible because they understand that that's who put them to work for them, that they don't work for the D.C. swamp and the big-time lobbyists and corporate donors. Mm, you know, that's probably why I love Joe Wilson so much, because Joe, you lie, Wilson, who was my representative until they did redistricting. But I saw him all the time. And he, now, you know, today, um, Nancy Mace is trying to, but uh, not quite. Not Like Joe was always there always there and that makes a good representative i did not always agree with his policy sometimes you know i went against him because i didn't think he was conservative enough at times but i never felt so proud of him when i saw joe go you lie wilson (laughs) at the (laughs) the state of the union with the president obama oh man my heart cheered (laughs) hey listen uh give us a little bit of a laugh here i pulled this up uh because believe it or not when I went to the New York City Police Academy, I carpooled with some friends, and this one guy, when it was his turn, always had Pink Floyd on, always. And you basically knew every song by heart at that point. Oh, well, Mark Zuckerberg offered Pink Floyd founder Roger Waters a huge amount of money to use one of the band's most iconic songs in an advertisement. Right. <laughs> and of course... Roger Waters does not pull punches, and his response was no effing way. 
Uh, Uh While speaking at an event supporting Julian Assange, Waters revealed that the social media giant wanted to use the 79 classic Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 for an Instagram ad. And Zuckerberg himself had sent him a rights request. And Waters held up the letter and said it arrived the morning of the event, but claimed he wasn't tempted by the huge, huge amount of money the tech mogul offered him. And the answer is effing you. No effing way. He exclaimed, (laughs) I only mention that because this is an insidious movement of them to take over absolutely everything. And if you think of that song, Another Brick in the Wall, is about the corporate establishment about the very thing the Democrats represent. <laughs> right? right. Teacher, we uh, don't need yeah. no education. <laughs> we, we, what we should do is we should petition Pink Floyd to allow us to play that song, Another Brick in the Wall Down on Our Southern Borders and Board of Washington, D.C. from the rest of the country. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, his distaste for uh, Julian, uh, not for Julian Assange, for uh, Mark Zuckerberg extended to, he said, how did this little punk who started off by saying she's pretty, we'll give her a four out of five, she's ugly, we'll give her a one, how did he get any power? And yet, here he is, one of the most powerful idiots in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, Roger, Roger Waters. (laughs) <laughs> I needed my laugh of the day. I really did need my laugh of the day. But, you know, you you think about, you know, how we had the guys in the 60s and 70s. It was all about protest. It's all about freedom, being free to do whatever it is you want, government not interfering. And those right. very same people are now the ones in power insisting that we kowtow to their wishes, their desires, and their control yep. of our lives. But that was mm-hmm. the very thing they protested growing up. Right. Um, and they, they have their own vocabulary they use as well. If you notice, everything they ever promote is always they, – they preface it with the first word public, public health, public security, public uh, policy, as if they're the experts on what the general populace, population needs. You know, why why do we need a public education department of education in D.C. telling counties and cities how to run their schools in other states? Um, when it comes down to that, I, I offer people, you know, I don't, I don't even use the word Republican, and sometimes I don't use the word conservative when I'm talking with someone to help them see the light. And I always ask a simple question: How much of government do you want in your life to tell you what to do? Well, I don't want government in my life at all. Congratulations, you're a conservative. Now let's work through the other points. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. Because uh, I sometimes ask some of the ministers, I says, you know, you vote Democrat, but you preach mm-hmm. conservative. So, so right. why? If, if you're if you're following mm-hmm. biblical principles that we are being taught, if you're following what was preached in the Gospels in the, in the New Testament, it's everything that is a conservative value. And the family right. unit, marriage between a man and a woman, um, honor thy mother and thy father, you know, honor God before. Uh, yeah. Love thy neighbor as thyself. All these very simple mm-hmm. things. You know, uh-huh. be generous to the stranger, uh, to look 
beyond uh, color and, and nationality. The Good Samaritan is a perfect example of that. And how many times did Christ go into areas that was prohibited for any Jew to walk into just to preach and help people? So isn't that right. what true conservatism is? You look beyond the color, your ethnicity, your skin color, or where you came from, and you look to the content of that person's character? But this exactly. is what they are not teaching us. They have to divide so us, and once they divide us, they conquer us. Exactly, and I'm so glad you, you uh, referenced the church because there are three institutions in every country that create – Shape and direct culture is downstream from religion. Life is a battle for worldview dominance. There's no such thing as neutrality. It's a myth. And one of the things conservatives adopted years ago was the false lie that you should never talk publicly about your religion or your politics, while at the same time those who were telling conservatives that in their schools and universities were marching with megaphones and teaching their leftist indoctrination into our schools. You know, well, we shouldn't pray in school, and there's a separation of church and state, which, by the way, the separation of church and state is nowhere in the Constitution. Um, but what did they do? They instituted their own religion, and we're seeing it now, critical race theory, which has been around for a long time. And you're right. Well, you we know, shouldn't we, judge others on on how much melanin is in their skin tone. <laughs> but um, I want to just – because the attack on religion was the first prong. First, you go yep. after the religion, then you go after the family unit, and then you beat right. them down by getting the kids in public education. Now, they went yeah. after the Tea Party back in uh, was it, uh, 2012 uh, with the IRS, using the IRS. Now, ironically, the Supreme Court yesterday had a 9-0 ruling in favor of protecting religious freedom with the uh, right. Catholic Charity suing the city of Philadelphia. They upheld religious freedom and liberty. Uh, Now, uh, there was a ruling in, um, where did I say that, Curtis? Uh, Was it Colorado? Uh, About that baker. First, they went after him because he went into the same-sex marriage case. uh, Cake, this time he refused to do a transgender, and Colorado ruled against the baker again. I see that heading back to the Supreme Court. And following this 9-0 ruling yesterday should set a precedent. However, the IRS is now going after churches trying to deny them their tax exemption, saying that if you tell people to pray for public figures and elected officials, you're actually telling them to pray for Republicans, therefore you lose your exemption. As if to right. say <laughs> that only Republicans are Christians – uh, will someone right. please tell Joe Biden next time he tries to receive communion? Exactly. And if you ever notice the people who say Christians shouldn't be political, their their politics are always left-leaning every single time, whether they're a professing Christian or what have you. Every person that says that believers should not be political, they always vote and lean left every time. It's a game they play. And conservatives need to start waking up. I, I don't ever want to hear ever again in my life silent majority. We should not be a silent majority. We should be a very vocal majority. We should take back our schools, take back our churches, take back our universities, and take back our country. And it starts with the family unit, and it starts with the education, and it starts with the churches. Because you cannot have freedom 
and a family unit if there's a big government because big government wants to play God. They have a savior complex, and they think they're here to do it. And we also now have to take back our media because we have, as it's been breaking, we're finding out even at Fox News there's been censorship. Now, I, yep. I knew about this, and I don't know if I told you, Curtis, but I do know that um, I've spoken to several people that end up being guests on my show, uh, also had been guests on Fox News, that they no longer go on there because they were being told by certain hosts that they could only say certain things. So if they were censoring the guests, what were they doing to the reporters all these years? But it's finally, finally coming out. We've got to take our media right. back. I mean, and listen, don't call yourself a journalist. Start turning off those stations. Start going to alternatives uh, like this show, or like uh, Newsmax or One American News or a ton of others that you can find of good conservative voices out there. And, right. and, and, and start to clear the cobwebs out of those brainwashed heads. <laughs> the problem is, but it, it's, is like Fox. Fox receives millions of dollars from ad revenue, and they don't want to lose that money if an ad says, well, if you talk about that, if you talk about Jeffrey Epstein, if you talk about the integrity of elections, we're going to pull our money. So if you say you're conservative and you're the conservative giant for media, put your money where your mouth is, you know? But we've clearly seen where Fox goes with that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But we're starting to take our country back, and we've got to do it one brick in the wall at a time. <laughs> right. And, but, and here's what uh, conservatives, conservatives don't need to wait on to see what Donald J. Trump is going to do. A lot of people want him to run for run again, but if he doesn't, we don't need to wait to see what he's going to do. We need to start now. Go to your – elections are coming up. School board elections are coming up. Your school board isn't neutral. It may be an NPA race, a non-party affiliated, but they have a biased agenda in their political ideologies. Make sure they teach your ideologies of Americanism, of Christianity, and conservatism, because if you don't, they will teach the opposite. We're seeing it now with the teachers' Ab- union, Democrat-controlled. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Matter of fact, um, someone had uh, – I had seen something in the news dealing with critical race theory, and I turned around to a school board, my school board representative, someone I actually knocked on doors for um, and helped get elected. I sent him a message that says, are we teaching CRT in our school district? And uh, he got back to me, and he said, no, we're not. He even then went further to make sure that that was true with our local county school superintendent. And then he went to the state school supervisor and pulled out a statement from her where she said, no, it will not be taught in our school system. We do not support it. We do not want the federal government telling us what to teach our children. We will not accept it. And we will not give additional funding to any school district that does attempt to teach it. And plus, it's sort of went even further where we have legislation that was presented back last month. Um, it's be, it had its first reading to prevent statewide no critical race theory or similar programs. So it's, it starts on a local level with one person asking the question, but you see the chain that it went up. 
All you need is one right. person to start to ask that question. And another example is, that, see, I run an active tea party. I have had this tea party since 2009, and we are still active. Um, we had someone take her kid to the local library, and when she saw what was in the children's section that where she took her nine-year-old son, she flipped out. It was promoting open transgenderism in the kids' wow. section. Uh, wow. Sexual promiscuity and other things. And they had faces on the wall of women of the month. And she was looking at some of these faces going, you've got to be kidding me. These are right. new, not good role models. So she got a hold no. of the librarian. She got a hold of me. I turned around, reached out to several other people, and the library is now having a meeting to help decide what should and should not be there with input from the public. And all it takes is wow. one person asking that question. Yeah. Just one well, person. Um, well, you know, we, we, have to, we have to guard the minds of our children because if we don't, the world will make sure that they do with the minds of our children, what they want. Well, Josh, we're going to have to get you back when you're not hanging drywall and have you spend a little more time with us. Oh, thank you so well, much. God bless you. If people try to reach you, where can they find you at? Uh, they can find my blog, Joshua L, as in Lee, Perry, P as in Paul, E-R-R-Y, dot com, Joshua L. Perry, dot com, and my Twitter account, at Real Josh Perry. Well, God bless you, Josh. Keep up the good work and hope to have you back on soon. Thank you so much for having me. Take All care. Right. Check you out. All right. We've got our, our, our next victim up and being put before the firing squad. Welcome aboard, Stephen Wilford. Good afternoon, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's it's Stephen, actually. Oh, well, uh, my, my buddy uh, <laughs> sent me... He said to write you down as Stephen, but Stephen, Stephen, fine. I apologize, but uh, I have no, to talk no to problem. Bill. <laughs> no problem. I, I've known Bill for a long time, so once he gets on the phone with you, forget about it. You're not getting off the phone anytime soon. <laughs> you know what I'm talking so your about. Last, so your last guest was a sheet rocker, you say, and I'm a plumber. Wow. <laughs> All we need is an electrician, then we can build the house. Anyway, um, you're a spokesman for the Second Amendment Foundation as well as for the NRA. Um, You're the good guy with a gun, as people know. Um, You became the face of a good guy with a gun back in November of 2017 in an incident that was made nationwide. Tell us what happened that what thrust you into the spotlight. Well, on November 5th, 2017, I was home kind of hanging out and uh, just kind of trying to relax because I was going to start an on-call at work. And my daughter came into my room where I was relaxing and said, Dad, doesn't that sound like gunfire? And when I realized I was gunfire, I ran to my safe, I grabbed my AR-15 out of the safe, grabbed the magazine, grabbed the handful of ammunition, loaded it, I ran to the door. I ran outside and ran across the street where a gunman was shooting up the church. I yelled when I was halfway across the street. 
And the only thing I can say is I truly believe it was the Holy Spirit that came out of David because he heard me yell inside the church. He's just shot Chris Workman in the back, paralyzing him from the waist down. He shot his mother through the breast. He was walking over to finish him off when he heard me yell. He instantly came outside and started shooting at me. I ran behind a pickup truck. He hit the truck in front of me. He shattered the windshield of the car behind me. He hit the house behind me. And I put six out of six bullets on him. He had all the class three body on my butt. And for your listeners, if you don't know, class two is generally what the police carry, and they stop Class two stops pistols. Class three will stop rifle rounds. And so I hit him in the left, left chest, I hit him in the abdomen, and those were stopped by the uh, body armor. He also had a ballistic-style helmet on, and uh, he ran toward his vehicle. When it turned to get into his vehicle, it was running in the middle of the street with the engine running and the driver's side door open. When he turned to his side, I put one between the plates in his side, and I put one in his legs. He was able to get in the vehicle, slammed the door, put two more rounds through the side window at me, accelerated, turned the corner. I put one where I perceived his head to be, and it went across his forehead. He turned the corner, accelerated, and as he was about 150 yards down the street by the time I got in the middle of the street. And I took one last shot. It went through the back windshield. It penetrated the driver's side seat. Hit him just right of the left shoulder blade. And he went over the top of the hill and just kept going. I I looked off to my left, and there was a truck that was sitting at the stop sign. And I ran over and tapped on the window of the truck. and said, they had to sign up the Baptist Church, and we have to stop it. And, you know, just put that picture in your mind for a moment. A guy comes running over your vehicle and taps on the window. Any sane person would have accelerated and left me standing there. But this is Texas we're talking about. We're not known for our sanity. So he unlocked his truck. I climbed in the cab, and we chased the guy for 11.6 miles. And in the end, he chose to take his own life. He killed himself. And I'm okay with that. Inside the church, he murdered 26 of the, the most beautiful people that you would ever want to meet. My my neighbors, my friends. He murdered 26 people. He wounded 20 more. Wow. That is, that is a tough, tough, tough story. But, you know, you now are... A, you are a firearms instructor, as I understand. You promote people being aware of what where they are and also being prepared should anything happen. And it's something that um, it, it's funny. I guess I've done it just about all my life. If I'm walking down the street and there's store windows, I'm looking at the store windows to see the reflections around me, not what's inside the store windows. Something as simple as that can save your life. Um, but being aware and and demanding that your Second Amendment rights be preserved. And we're finding them being attacked left and right. Um, as my listeners know, I'm a retired New York City cop, and it really kicked the ever-loving out of me that they demanded that you know when you went home, even if you lived alone, you had to lock your firearm up. 
all it takes is a split second for someone to come through that door or that window, and by the time you get to your firearm, you unlock it and you load it, the damage has been done. So, you know, even, so you have to be aware. Absolutely. So recently, Ted Cruz uh, had me speak before the Senate on, uh, in a virtual meeting before the Senate on the committee to pass a federal law to make that exactly the, the law, that you would have to lock your gun away in a safe. And I testified because I timed it both ways. And I, if I would have just run to my closet and grabbed a gun and ran out the door, and the way it happened, I had to run to my safe, open up the safe, grab a gun, grab a magazine, grab a box of ammunition, pop it open, and put eight rounds in it. That's what I had. It took me another 90 seconds, and that's 90 seconds that I'll never get back. That's 90 seconds how- that the whole time I was dialing my combination into my safe, I was hearing gunshots. If I had been there 15 seconds earlier, Chris Workman would still be walking. Stephen, I, I was just curious. Do you have a military background? And if so, did that play a role in this? I did not. I do not. I was not law enforcement. I was not military. But I used to control in a rifle. And uh, I used to train and stuff because it's it's – it's my form of golfing, if you will. Um, <laughs> well, Colonel Grossman, he's written several books. David Grossman, in one of his books, he said a, a golf course is a willful misuse of a perfectly good rifle range. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. I do like that. What he means, what like he means by that is, you know, what he means by that is, Everything you use as a hobby ought to have a practical purpose, right? Golf That's right. Really doesn't have a practical purpose. <laughs> <laughs> no, he gets the husband out of the house so the wife has some free time. It's funny because now at this point in time, approximately half of the country, or half the states are now Second Amendment sanctuary states. You know, people are realizing how precious this one freedom is, the Second Amendment, and how much it supports the First Amendment and all other amendments. You take away the guns from law-abiding citizens, look what's happening in Chicago. And you look at what's happening in New York. The cities that are gun-controlled cities, it's, it's a criminal's haven. Murder rates are up some yeah one thousand three hundred percent in some in places. It's crazy. Every single day it's you're taking your life in your own hands, simply stepping out your door. And never mind about the that, ones that, you know, get killed while they're even sitting at home watching T V. Yeah. That being said, yesterday as a matter of fact, I attended the signing ceremony of making Texas the 21st state that's a constitutional carry state and making Texas also a sanctuary, a Second Amendment sanctuary state 
and also the hotel bill, the suppressor freedom bill in Texas, saying that uh, Texas, any suppressor made in the state of Texas, 100% and is not sold over state lines is now legal in the state of, state of Texas. It takes it off the NFA list for Texas. So there was like probably six or eight bills that the governor signed yesterday, and he did it at the Alamo in San Antonio. And I was invited to be there for that. And the cradle of freedom for for Texas, the Alamo. And uh, we were there for that that signing ceremony. Now, didn't they just pass open carry in Texas? Yes. Now Texas is an, right. uh, a constitutional carry state. So you can carry without a permit. You can open carry or concealed carry in the state of Texas without a permit. Now, they and just see, that's, passed that's open why. carry. They just passed open what? carry here in South Carolina. And the next step we're trying to do is get the constitutional with no no permit. But we've got the yeah. foot in the door with the open carry here. It's just a matter of pushing the rest of the door open. Second Amendment, Mm -hmm. that's our permit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) But like I was saying, I I asked about your military background because it dispels the notion that those who are anti-gun advocates, they say that, well, unless you have a law enforcement background or military, you're a danger with a gun in your hand. And you're... you're, Life testimony oh, they're right. is. Uh, they're right. I'm, I'm a danger to criminals. <laughs> <laughs> I <love> that. <laughs> like love Mark that. McCluskey. <laughs> yeah. Keep your pistol you know, to yourself. I... Keep, keep your pistol to yourself. <laughs> and I'm not a danger to you. But I will not <laughs> yeah. stand by and let innocents be murdered. Oh, man. You know, um, what I found very interesting as I was doing my research to bring you on, um, this was in GunMag, uh, which can be found on the Second Amendment Foundation uh, website, saf.org. Um, there's an article about there. I did not know this. The Brady Gun Control Group is taking second taxpayer-funded COVID bailout money. Now, what would the Brady Gun Control Group have any need for COVID bailout? But according to them, they got one over half a million, and the second one, jeez, uh, six hundred ninety-five thousand. Holy cow! They're getting our taxpayer money to help How do promote I sign taking up for our. I don't know. I, I'm just I, saying I really I don't use a million dollars of COVID money. And uh, this is this is a true story. You know, I filed our income taxes. Um, I sent them in, and next thing I know, I get this letter in the mail saying that I was eligible for a COVID uh, bailout. You know, COVID che- stimulus check or something like that. And the next day, I get in the mail a government check for COVID stimulus simply because I filed my taxes, and I, I didn't apply for anything. So I didn't even know why or how I even got this, or even if it was out there. So what is this administration doing with our money? And besides trying to pass numerous laws to destroy the First and Second Amendments of our Constitution? 
Well, first I want to tell you, the government is not spending our money at all. They're spending our grandchildren's money. Ours has already been spent. Ours has been spent a long time ago. We are stacking this debt on our grandchildren now. And it's outrageous. Our grandchildren are going to live in third world country because we haven't been able to hold our budgets and our pockets shut. Our government is spending, has already spent our Social Security that we put in. And now they're spending our grandchildren's money and, you know, drunken sailors are insulted when they give government spending like drunken sailors. Drunken sailors don't spend money that bad. And, And we are giving away the future of this great country. And to a so to to a stimulus, you know, so we can spend money now. You know, people think, oh, all the government has to do is print more money. That's not the way it works. Yeah, what value do you money. put to that? Yeah, there's no value to that printed money. Thank you, Richard Nixon, for dropping us off the gold standard. At least you had something to back that dollar. Yeah. But there's it holds no well, value. So. The point of print, it only create inflation. Nazi Germany tried that. People were walking around with barrels of, of Deutschmarks that had absolutely no value. And that is what they are doing to us now. If anyone has gone to the grocery store in the last week, my normal grocery bill would have been like $120. It was $60 more than I anticipated spending. And that's only buying what I had on my list. We are in the midst of an inflation and our government has is out of control. This administration has sent us down the cesspool. Well, now when, when make, you talk of spending, my understanding is they want to spend six trillion dollars, it, and it's crazy. Make no mistake, I'm not blaming just Joe Biden on this. I'm blaming every administration since Nixon on this, and and even probably even Nixon and and farther back. This country has been spending money that it doesn't have, and we have been just peddling away our kids' futures, and people don't get that. China owns us now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, they do. And unfortunately, the last fiscally responsible president, believe it or not, very little known, most people forget that this guy was a president, Calvin Coolidge. This guy just loved to slash the budget and find regulations that are costing money and slashing them and finding little areas to cut more and more. He was the last fiscally conservative president we've had. Everyone since then has just sent our debt higher and higher and higher. And we're spiraling out of control, and it's going to happen soon. China is already in our our schools. They're in our corporations. Uh, They are own massive sections of the United States, including a harbor up in Connecticut that the new U.S. Navy is not even allowed to go into. You know, they are in our government. Uh, They are now part of our nation, and we're too dumb to know that. And, And what business have we got as a nation? First, one of the first things that, that, um, Biden did when he got into office is he repealed the 
former president Trump's, well, actually, I think my president actually, Trump's uh, ban on us doing abortions in third world countries. What business have we got taking our tax money and doing bans on third world countries? You know, or or gender studies in Pakistan. You know, they sent a bunch of money, millions of dollars over to Pakistan to do gender studies. Hey, you know, I'll do it for a hundred, I'll do it for a million and I'll come up with there's two genders, male and female. <laughs> wow. And I, I, I you know, I just gave you a million dollar advice. Imagine that. You know, if if anyone were to realize some of the idiotic things our government, and it's not just the federal government, it's our local state and our local governments that that come up with some of these bird brain ideas, uh, and if we don't pay attention, if we don't challenge them, they they get away with it. It wasn't until um, uh, open the books exposed the shrimp on a treadmill. Uh, that we were paying for, what was that, in China? You know, these things we should be aware of, but we need organizations like Open the Books. We need people to help preserve our constitutional rights like the Second Amendment Foundations and the NRA and see people like you out there speaking out for them. Um, I challenged my county council member one day I was coming home, going through the intersection leading to my house, and I see people out there surveying. I'm going, I didn't know there was any construction going to be set up on here. What the heck are they surveying for? So I call my county council member. He goes, oh, they're going to put a traffic circle up there. And I said, how much is that going to cost? Six million. And I said, Paul, are you aware that if you put a traffic light up there, we can reverse it in case of a hurricane or any other emergency. You can't do that with a traffic circle very easily. It causes a lot of accidents when you do try to do that. And a traffic light will only cost just anywhere from ten to maybe 20000 depending upon which one you get and how you have it set up. So why are we paying $6 million when we should only be spending ten to 20000 He said to me, don't worry. You're not paying for it. The state is sending the money. Uh, that is a WTF moment. State? Yes, that was a WTF moment. That was a head slap going, excuse me? So now we have a traffic <laughs> circle where there could have been a traffic light. So, yeah, we have and, to be ever vigilant. And the state create, doesn't create money. They take your taxes to pay that. Mm-hmm. And and if he doesn't realize that, he shouldn't be in office. If he Hopefully he won't be for very that, long. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hopefully. There you go. Oh, man. But if we don't pay attention, you know, these things will end up happening to us. But it, the gun magazine that is on the Second Amendment Foundation organization is very, very informative and it gives you what is going on around the country so you can actually zoom in on what is happening specifically in in your um in your state and uh well right now the I'm sorry go ahead Alan Godfrey what just happened in California the second amendment foundation saf.org has been fighting that fight and has fought it all the way up and the sixth circuit 
judge just made the assault weapons ban, overturned it in California. Wow, really? You know, how cool is that? You know, now yeah. I understand it got appealed and it goes on farther and, and, and people like the Second Amendment Foundation out there fighting it right on up and we'll take it to the Supreme Court. You know, the assault weapons ban, first the, the, the term assault weapon is, is, is bogus. It's, it's trash. It's not real. And so now the media has decided that that term is, you know, we're used to it now, and it really doesn't apply as much anymore. So now what are they doing? They're changing the words. They're calling, we don't need these weapons of war on our streets. Yes. They're calling them weapons of war now. It sounds more menacing and more evil. You know, it's weapons of, look at this, it's weapons of war. And reality is, go look at the FBI stats. More people are killed every year, murdered every year by a hammer than rifles across the board. And that's not my stat. That's FBI stat. So a baseball bat is up there. What's that? I said even baseball bats are more than, than guns. Yes. Well, not more than guns, but more than rifles. But but they want to ban AR-15s, the very same gun that I use to defend my community. You know, a gun doesn't have a conscience. It it doesn't. It, it's not good nor bad. It it's it's all in the hands of the user, just like a Stanley claw hammer. You can build a house with a Stanley. You know, you can hunt with an AR-15. Everybody says, oh, you don't hunt with AR-15s. Go pick up a hunting magazine. Any modern hunting magazine on the market now. Go go pick it up off the shelf. I will guarantee you that almost every one of those magazines has at least one article of an AR-15 and a hunt in it. You know, yes, they are modern hunting rifles. Did we just lose Stephen? Stephen? No, I'm, I'm here. I'm oh, here. I'm I, I, I just I heard. Was, I was just making. I, said, I hunt with AR. I hunt with AR-15 every year. I, I like I take game. I like other people. Well, I, I like other people who go hunting and give me the game afterwards. It saves me all the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on down and we'll 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 hunt a hog, and then we'll put it well, on you, a you're, spit and. and and cook it out there in the open. Well, you know, as you said, they they change the wording to make everything seem, oh, this is is dramatic, as you said, weapons of war. But they also say guns kill. No, 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 no. Guns don't kill. People kill. The gun is, as you said, is inanimate object. You know, I can turn around and put my gun down by the front door, Go to work, go shopping, go partying, whatever, come home, and my gun hasn't killed anyone. But if I were to pick it up and aim it and fire it at someone, well, then I did that, not the gun. It's just the tool. And as you said, it could be a hammer. It could be a baseball bat. It could be, I don't know, 
someone the other day tried to kill someone with a cobblestone. You know, anything well, you- anything can be used as a weapon, depending upon how much that person wants to kill the other individual. And they'll find a way the to very, do it. The very first murder ever recorded, Cain killed Abel with a rock. Yes. And the nature of man has never changed. Evil exists in this world. And the only thing that trumps evil is good. And so why would you take the guns out of the good people's hands when evil's going to persist and the evil's going to have a gun? And, you know, someone asked me a long time ago, well, let's just pretend, let's pretend that we could take all the guns from everybody in the whole world, from the the militaries, from from the police, from all the bad guys and everything else, would you be okay with that? And I said no, because the reason is, is then the elderly and the small or the weak would be totally taken advantage of by the strong because guns are the great equalizer um, I wouldn't want my daughter to be without one she may be raped by a big man but put a gun in her hands and all three of my children both my daughters and my son NRA distinguished experts with a pistol by the time they were eight years old they were well trained and put a gun in their hands, and now they're equal to anybody. You know, it doesn't matter how big the guy is or how strong he is or whatever. Put a gun in their hands, and they can handle him. It is Exactly. And everybody gets old sooner or later. And, I, you know, and if you have a world totally without any kind of balance, then the young, strong are going to take advantage of the weak in our world, the handicapped, the old, the young, and it's just a world of chaos. Absolutely. It's better to... Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm I'm a petite little woman, and I live in a neighborhood where people normally do not walk up my driveway. I mean... It, my driveway is big enough to hold eight cars. So if someone's walking up my driveway, it better be my mailman or someone delivering a package or a dear friend of mine that I was expecting. So I kept on getting this one guy popping up at my front door claiming to be a college student. If he was a college student, I'm in kindergarten. I'm selling, <laughs> claiming to sell magazines. And the third time he came up to my door, I looked down the street. There's a van parked at the end of the street, a, uh, in the spot, no one ever parks, never, ever. And I said, something's not right here. And spidey senses were going up. Sure enough, it was a group of guys that were casing neighborhoods and doing burglaries just to see if anyone was home. Well, the third time he hit my door, I put my little revolver in my waistband. I opened the door and I looked at his sneakers. and I said, you got your felony flyers tied tight, don't you? He looks down and goes, yeah. I says, Feet don't fail you now. You got to the can of three. And his feet went down my front stoop and down my driveway. Lord knows what would have happened if I didn't do that. If he saw I may have been home alone. 
you know, when I testified before the uh, United States Senate, I used a story, uh, and I, I heard the story when I was at uh, the NRA convention. There's a young lady from Virginia, and she's small. She's probably five foot nothing. She was home with her two-year-old daughter. In the middle of the night, her husband was a police officer, and he worked nights. And she heard someone hit her door. And it wasn't knocking at her door. It was trying to push her door in. She grabbed her pistol and yelled, I've got a gun. And he hit the door so hard, he broke it in two places, two pieces. And he charged down her hallway. And she shot him twice and then held him at gunpoint for the police to get there. Her hmm. name her name is uh, uh, April Evans, and it's an amazing story. She defended, they call her Mama Bear now. She defended herself wow. and her two-year-old daughter. Go get a Mama Bear. She could never have <laughs> been a match for the man that broke her door in. And, you know, <laughs> well, it's really funny. Well, uh, I, I, asked, I asked her, I said, uh, you know, I want to ask you a real personal question, and you don't have to answer me if you don't want to. And she said, okay. I said, uh, where did you hit him? And she said, I have a tendency at the range to pull down and to the left. Low. Yeah, I and do. She said, I my do fir- too. <laughs> she said, my first time went through him. his right. She said, my first shot went through his right hand, went to his abdomen, and and stopped at his spine. And she said, he'll have a he'll forever have a limp because of that. And she said, my second shot hit him in the groin. And she said, when the EMS got there, they rolled him over, and the bullet fell out his behind. I said, oh, <laughs> that is just justice. Oh man! See, my my first round always ends up in the groin area. I don't know why, but uh, Stephen, it has been a pleasure. People can find you at uh, the Second Amendment Foundation dot saf dot org, as well as you have your own website, which is your name, s t e p h e n w i l l e f o r d dot com. Thank you for all the hard work you do at this. Uh, God bless. I, I do. I do. I do have one other thing I'm trying to promote. If it's okay. Go ahead. Hello. Okay. Yeah. Go so ahead. I have my own. I have my own YouTube channel, and so go to YouTube and type in Barefoot Defender, and subscribe to my channel. Okay. All right. Well, well, thank you very much, Stephen. Have a great day. Enjoy your weekend. You too. God bless. Thank you. Bye. All right. Wow, what a fun guest. All right, we've got our, our next victim up in the batting box, Dr. Michael Grayson. Good afternoon, Dr. Grayson. How are you today? Hey, good afternoon. How are you doing today? Oh, just having one of those days where nothing goes the way you expect it to. <laughs> but we're going to get through it. Well, you know, um, when Bill sent me your info. He didn't send me a heck of a lot, so I had to do a little hunting around, uh, okay. and I actually sped read your book last night, too. Uh, you've nice. got a book out called How to Stop Making Payments, How to Legally Defer All of Your Creditor Payments, Including Rent and Mortgages, for 3 to 12 Months and Save Your Credit. Uh, 
Yeah, you managed to say that all in one mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> but I was able to piece together that you had an interesting background. A situation arose where you ended up in a tremendous amount of debt, and you had to find a way to get yourself back on your feet. What was going on? Okay, so I had I stepped on a nail, and I went to see um, my doctor, and uh, he had misdiagnosed it. He said my foot was okay. You know, I was feeling very ill, but he said, you know, that was probably something else. But he said, come back and see him in two months. So um, I started getting progressively more and more sick, and then I was doing a workshop in California for some movie executives. And I was able to do the workshop, but I was walking back to my hotel room, and I fell out. I just passed out. And they took me to the hospital, and the the, uh, surgeon looked at my foot. He said, you should have been in surgery 15 minutes ago. Uh, It turns out there was a piece of the nail still in my foot that had got infected and unfortunately had gained green and my organs had started shutting down. They needed me in surgery, but I wasn't strong enough. So I stayed in ICR for about a month, and then finally I was able, I was strong enough for surgery, but I got into a disagreement with the surgeons. They wanted to take my leg off, which I did not want to happen. I asked them to take my toes off and my foot off a piece at a time. And, you know, but my insurance, I think, was... uh, pressuring them to take the leg off because it was more expedient. But, uh, you know, I ended up getting kicked out of the hospital. I had to go to another hospital. Uh, you know, my, my, my doctors are, are in, uh, were in New York, so they got me ambulatory, you know, took me to, uh, I got to New York, and there I was able to, to convince my doctors to, to use that methodology. Now, I ended up losing my foot, but I, I saved my leg, you know, and but it was a much more labor and time intensive process of, you know, taking antibiotics, trying to flush the infection out of my system. So I stayed in the hospital for about eight months continuously. So if you can Whoa. imagine my hospital bills were, you know, in excess of one point two million dollars. I mean, but I didn't worry about my bills. I was worried about, you know, saving my leg and not dying. You know, the other doctors convinced me that if they didn't take off my leg and the infection, you know, had gotten into my bones, you know, that it could just ravage my body and just take me out. But I didn't really think that God had that in store for me. So, you know, I stayed the course, and I'm glad I did. But it was financially devastating, you know, of course. Wow. So now you're here, you're, you're, you're rehabbing, you're out of the hospital, now you're getting calls from creditors, you're, you're probably going to be evicted from your home. Uh, yeah. So what did you end up doing? Okay, so, you know, I'm in the credit business, so I didn't really worry about the bills. So, you know, what my insurance paid, it paid. The bills that I owed, I didn't worry about. I knew that at some point... You know, I I would resolve them. So as it turns out, so once you stop paying anything in this country, uh, once you haven't paid it for 120 days and it gets charged off and passed to a debt collector, it then becomes very difficult for the debt collector to collect that debt legally. So some, some debts 
you know, if the debt is canceled by the original creditor, then technically it's uncollectible legally. So, you know, if I'm in a position to pay my debts, I would pay them, you know, and I, I always maintain 800 credit. And unfortunately, my score is back up over 800. But, you know, the, the system is designed so that you can get in and out of debt very quickly and maintain perfect credit. The government is really in the business of giving you perfect credit and eliminating your debts. The problem is most people don't know how to use the system and therefore they fall off the, the program and do things like file bankruptcy, you know, consumer credit counseling, debt consolidation scams, you know, they pay creditors money that they could have eliminated. But the government offers you a program called debt filtration. So, you know, one of the, the, the debt filters I talk about specifically in that book you read is called the CARES Act, which was passed, you know, last year. So the CARES Act, if you've been negatively impacted by COVID, it allows you to defer all of your debt, including your rent and mortgages, for up to 12 months. And once you are in that program uh, with the creditor, then the creditor cannot mark your credit late. You can actually clean your credit retroactive to January 1, 2020, instantly. So there's no excuse, and I hate to see, you know, I get clients every day who have credit problems, you know, from last year. They had perfect credit up until last year. They lost their job or lost their business or was hospitalized, and so now their credit is bad. But fortunately for them, you know, I had to do it the hard way. You know, it took me a while. You know, in fact, I'm in, in, in court right now with Equifax. If you Google Dr. Grayson versus Equifax, you'll see that I'm suing. I sued all three credit bureaus. Two of them settled with me right away, but Equifax wanted to play hardball, so we're in court right now. And just to give you an idea how that's going for them, they're on their third set of law firms. So they've hired three of the top ten law firms in the country, and the, their current law firm, they're on their fifth attorney trying to deal with me. But I, I'm very proficient in debt and credit law. You know, in 2014, uh, the editors of uh, R.E. Wealth magazine called me the world's leading credit expert. So I, I understand how that system works. But um, using the Debt Filter CARES Act, everybody in the country should be able to rebound very quickly before the year's out. Everybody in the country should have perfect credit before December. You know, they should be able to bounce back, and that's what I, you know, why I appreciate what you do and you give me this opportunity on your show because people are suffering needlessly. The government understands, you know, one of the first considerations was at first giving you money, but at the same time saving your credit. The, the government is serious about debt and consumer debt and credit. They, you have to have good credit and be have low debt because, in order for this economy to thrive, we have to sell houses and cars. So no matter what else goes on in the economy, no matter how much money they spend on infrastructure or other programs, if you're not buying houses and cars, the economy shuts down. So that is why the mm. government is debt filtration business. The consumer credit, you know, President Obama, if you go on YouTube and look up Obama, and his address to the joint sessions of Congress. So 
within the first five minutes of that, he's talking about all the programs they're going to do to save the economy. But then right around minute 11, I think it is, he says, listen, no matter how much money we spend, no matter how well we implement the first phase of our plan, none of that matters unless we rebuild consumer credit and jumpstart lending. And so that was the first time in history I'd heard a president actually, you know, talk about debt filtration and, and the programs, you know, and how, you know, consumer credit is a concern to the government. It's more of a concern for them than it is for you. But, you know, he was encouraging you as a good citizen to maintain perfect credit and to let you know there are programs out there to help you, you know, rebound from any financial hardship and not bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is not a debt filter. You know, bankruptcy is like a, a last resort that should almost never be used. In fact, if you look at the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, it says that, you know, unfair debt collection practices lead to, and the number one thing that it, it, it outlined was personal bankruptcies. So people are filing bankruptcy for debt that they don't necessarily have to pay or debt they could have uh, eliminated through debt filtration. So the number one problem with, you know, unfair debt collection practices is it leads people to believe that the only choice is bankruptcy. So we want to yeah, help it, educate. Well, people don't really understand how some of this works. And was, your book showed me, I didn't know about these programs that, just you were talking about, uh, but I I did know some of the ABCs uh, because okay. when my husband and I moved here to South Carolina, neither one of us really had the greatest you know uh, uh, credit, but we ended up buying the house that we're in now. So okay. one of the things we had to do just prior to that was to try to get our credit number up, uh, and that was when we went through the credit report, line by line, line by line, and I found that there was stuff on my credit report that actually belonged to my ex-sister-in-law. So yes. having get that cleared up. So you, you actually have to make sure that the debt that is on your credit report is actually your debt. You know, there were yes. accounts that were, had been closed that they were still showing as open. Um, making sure that you did have, you know, everything paid in on time. So, you know, we started to learn the ABCs when we bought this house, and that's now 20 years ago. So things were a little bit different then. But then I do know that under President Bush, he had, uh, right around 9-11, had put that uh, mortgage modification. So I was able to yes. pull my mortgage company and lower my interest rate, saving me thousands of dollars. You know, things yes. like that. Uh, then I learned about the loan modification because they sold my mortgage to another company. And I said, well, interest rates are dropping uh, without having to go through the whole rigmarole. Can we modify the loan? to?" So those were things that I had been doing. But what people don't also realize is that when a, uh, a debt company buys, say, for example, you had a credit card. And the credit card company sells your debt to another company. It's pennies on the dollar. So you yes. can actually negotiate instead of paying, say, for example, you have five thousand. If it may only be seven hundred and fifty dollars, you may end up having to pay yes. off. So these are things I knew about, but what you have in your book are things that I didn't know. Yeah. Well, you know, there debt is 
like a multi-trillion dollar scam. I mean, everybody's making so much money off the fact that you don't understand the debt system in America. And fundamentally, everybody thinks, well, I understand debt. I understand credit. But what happened in, 20, in the year 2000, this country and every industrialized nation in the world switched over to the FICO credit scoring system. So the new credit scoring system is radically different than the old credit system. So how you restore your credit, eliminate debt, and, and access capital has is radically changed. In fact, Drew, uh, you mentioned President Bush. I was honorary chairman of the Business Advisory Council under President Bush. And one of the, the – I wrote a report for him, and one of the things that came out of that, the, uh, the uh, General Accountability Office did a report of – that said that, you know, the lack of understanding of credit systems and debt systems is one of the single greatest threats to our economy. And here we are, you know, they wrote that report in 2010, now we're at 2021, and there's still nobody doing an a, uh, excellent job uh, of helping to disseminate this information to consumers. Like you said, now you were very, you know, diligent and actually got to the solution set, but a lot of Americans don't know where to go. They're confused. There's so much bad information out there. So I wanted to give your listeners one top secret tool, and that is, first, a, a debt filter is a, a system of, right now there's about 50 debt filters. They're government programs that are designed to eliminate your debt and restore your credit. So if you have a debt problem, for every debt and credit problem, there's a corresponding debt filter. So if you have a problem, you should Google and you Google what? debt filter or you, cancellation and forgiveness. You got so you, you gotta do that over again first you gotta do that over okay. again because for that second you dropped out. I guess the government okay. was listening. <laughs> <laughs> right. So listen, so if you think you have a debt or credit problem, so let let me give you an example. Let's say you think you have a tax lien problem or an income, you owe the IRS a ton of money, and they just sent you one of those letters in the mail. I had a client call the other day, and it said, intent to levy in bold print, so you know they're coming for you. And this client owed $60,000, so he had panicked. Because they said, call right away, you know, or they're coming, and you know they'll lock you up or take all your stuff. So people were really scared. So they called them, and they put him on a payment plan of two grand a month, which he could not afford, $2,000 a month coming out of a pandemic. So he was panicked. Now he had took a second job, and even with that, that two grand was wiping him out. He couldn't pay his his um, his mortgage or any other bills. So what I told him, you know, he had heard one of my programs. You know, the IRS offers one of the best debt filters in the country. If you owe the IRS money, you shouldn't pay them. You should filter that debt. So understand what I'm saying. They, they're going to call you and say, hey, you owe us money. Pay us right now or we're going to lock you up. But the first thing you should do, and if you aren't familiar how this works, go to IRS. So you would start, you Google uh, tax problem cancellation and forgiveness. That is your keywords. If you don't remember anything else from this show, remember cancellation and forgiveness. So I got a tax problem. 
cancellation and forgiveness. Okay? So when you Google that, you will see OIC, Offer in Compromise, one of the greatest debt filters that's available in this country. So if you go to irs.gov, you put in Offer in Compromise, you'll see their explanation of what that debt filter is and how it works. And it is amazing. So two of the things I wanted to make sure we, you understand. Once you apply for the offering compromise, it shuts down all collection activity, number one. Number two, it cancels all existing payment arrangements. So just like with this client who stepped into a $2,000 a month payment because he was scared, once we file the OIC and they receive it, he no longer has to make those uh, automatic payments that he signed up for. So the offering compromise will reduce your tax liability up to 90%, people, 90%. So why are you paying 60000 when you can reduce it up to 90%? So yes. Now, there are people who have um, declared bankruptcy. Yes. Is it true that after, what, seven years, that get wiped off their record? After 10 years. For everything else, it's seven years. For bankruptcy, it's 10 years. But after 10 years, mostly it comes off. If it doesn't, you still have to dispute it and get it off. Theoretically, it is supposed to fall off automatically. You're absolutely correct. But sometimes, you know, the credit bureaus are not as diligent as they should be, and so you simply have to file a dispute and get it off. Now, what about credit monitoring companies? Well, I am always enrolled in a credit monitoring company. Now, they're extremely expensive relative to what they do. You know, I pay, I think I pay like $30 a month or something ridiculous like that. But I check my credit every day. I check my credit every day because even though I'm over 800, like, you know, a couple months ago, somebody stuck a crazy collection on my credit and it dropped me 80 points. So most people don't find out that kind of information until they need their credit and then it's kind of too late. But I was able to, you know, apply the appropriate debt filter and, and clean that off of my credit. So I like credit monitoring, but it's too, it's cost prohibitive you know, at some levels. So, you know, if you can't afford the credit monitoring, then Credit Karma is a very good alternative to that. You know, they, they're not as accurate and they get some criticisms and they only offer you two bureaus, but better than having no access to your credit. Realistically, everybody in the country should check their credit at least once a month. You know, weekly is ideal. I check mine daily, but at least once a month because your credit is your lifeblood. It controls where you live, what kind of car you drive, where you work. I mean, everything in your lifetime is controlled by your credit. So I want to be very proactive and constantly building. You know, it was funny. I was in court with Equifax, and they had raised my score. Now, they had artificially lowered my score, but they raised it back up over 800. And the judge was kind of looking at me like, you know, why are we still in court? You're over 800. You know, but listen, I need to be at 850. You know, I, I, and it's not just the number. I just want them 
to report accurately, not just for me personally, but all the other millions of people who they're giving a hard time. They're not doing the right things. You know, we're coming out of COVID. The credit bureaus can't afford to be lackadaisical about cleaning your credit when it's due or, or, or right or necessary. So that is why I'm still suing you, and that's why I'm not going to drop the case, because you need to understand that this is a serious issue. And so, yeah, yeah, just check. you got to check your credit regularly. But that's a very good yes. point. Well, I, I use the LifeLock, and I, okay. I like it because if I do go in for a, a, a car loan or something like that, um, I'm not even done signing the papers. Then you've already got the alert on my phone. And it's instantaneous. <laughs> So, you know, for them, I don't care. I'm paying over 50 bucks for my husband and myself. Yeah, I don't yeah. mind because I have that security. Um, yeah. But I do believe everyone should have some form of credit monitoring because uh, people no don't check it every day or every week. Uh, I don't even check it every month. You know, once in a while I'll poke and take a look. But, you know, I'm not going to be being employed anywhere. I'm retired. <laughs> Right. Well, you know what I teach in my, for my clients and friends, I teach them how to weaponize their credit. So I don't want you to use your credit just for buying stuff. I want you to access capital, use it as a tool for investment, creating uh, you know, uh, prosperity at a whole nother level. You know, like for for instance, I, I pioneered a concept called uh, a reciprocating financial network. So where you get three or more people together and you combine your credit power. So with three people over 720 credit score, you can access up to five million bucks. So now you can start buying wholesale properties. You know, everywhere you can start a very lucrative business, buy a franchise. So even though you might work at McDonald's, you know, washing dishes, but you, you have a 720 credit score, now you can own a McDonald's and you work for fun or you work, you know, like one, one of my clients worked at Creflo Dollars Church in the library making less than minimum wage, but she could afford to do that because we had got her an 800 credit score and she weaponized her credit, and she had numerous investments. I mean, her investment portfolio was crazy and beautiful. And so, but she worked in Creflo Dollar's library, making little or no money, but she was immaculately dressed, very beautiful woman, and just extremely happy and just cheerful that she had a no-pressure job. I mean, some people make up money, but they hate their jobs. They're under so much stress and pressure. Put your credit to work for you and take that pressure off. Well, how do you find people to get together with? Is there an organization or is it some sort well, of a social network? How do they do that? No, that's, that's exactly how you do it. So everybody has a social network now. I mean, it's huge and crazy how many followers, like even, you know, like my daughter has like 5,000 followers. So just like I do with all my relatives, I said, listen, turn your social network into a financial network. So you just start by simply saying, hey, look, anybody out there with over 720 credit score that wants to join my financial network, we're going to invest in real estate. Or let's say, you know, one of, one of the, the young ladies in my church, and she was only 21 years old, her and her husband started a reciprocating financial network. She was an excellent cook. Every time she cooked for the church, 
she would sell out within minutes every single thing she brought because she was phenomenal. So here in New York, uh, they end up they, they decided to open a restaurant. They put together the the RFN. I was able to get them a large line of credit. I can't say how much, but it was huge. And she opened a restaurant on Court Street. So if you're in Brooklyn, you know, Court Street has beautiful, nice, you know, pricey restaurants. Her restaurant may be one of the nicest. And at 21 years old, she's working in there with her husband, who is, again, is young. And people probably look at them and think, oh, you know, they're making minimum wage, poor kids. They own that place, you know. And that's, <laughs> that's the power of this, you know. Just, but so you start by just telling your network, let's do something more powerful. Let's, let's control something. If you, you know, just like a, a sample of that, Robin Hood kind of did that with this whole thing where they were, you know, shorting that stock. So that is how you start, by just putting the word out there and say, hey, let's do something important. But with money, you know, talking about a thing is good, but when you can back it up with money, it's even more powerful. You know, so you want to create jobs. How about creating jobs by owning a business? You know, so those are the ways to do it. So just put the word out there, say, hey, let's join the group. And then once you have a group of three or more people, you can call our office, and we will show you how to tie it all together. You know, we don't even charge for that. We'll show you how to put those people together, and then you can come to us, and we'll get you a line of credit. You know, big lines. You know, we, 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 in 2014, I was on the cover of RE Wealth Magazine only because they said I helped create more millionaires than anybody else in the country, and that's how I do it. Just tying your credit together. Imagine if you had, every person over 720 is worth a minimum of 250000 and a maximum of $3 million. So technically wow. in this country, once you have 720 you're a millionaire. Well, Dr. Michael, people can find you where? Okay, so you can call our office, 718-481-3363. You can call us 24 hours a day, 718-481-3363. Or you can go to our website, perfectcredit4life.com, perfectcredit4life.com. All right, and Bill sent me a website called build850credit.com also. That's good. Build850, yes, that's one of our websites. And and our corporate headquarters site is cdmionline.com. So Charlie David Michael Indigo, online.com. That stands for Credit and Debt Management Institute. So that is our nonprofit where we do a ton of financial literacy campaigns. So if you're a politician and you want to bring this word or you want to bring us to your church or organization, you will go to cdmionline.com and we'll come out and speak to your group. Well, Dr. Grayson, thank you for joining us. You you gave us a lot of information. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate you. Keep up the good work. Thank All you. All right. God take bless. care. Dr. Michael Grayson, check him out. Now we've got our final victim, our final victim of the day. Yay. Welcome back, Jonathan. Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. Good afternoon, Jonathan. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm excellent. How are you? Ah, the day is coming to an end. Ah, cocktail hour soon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You know, uh, the nation is starting to wake up from like a real deep slumber. 
And I think what really got people awake was first is the pandemic, the, the mask mandates, and now this critical race theory, or as I wrote it down, is capitalism removal training. <laughs> so, That's I mean, a great acronym. You know, that it, works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, I had a conversation earlier in the show with someone. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that this critical theory, critical race theories, has its roots in the creation of Marxism, critical theory, where they used class to get the race, to get the battle going and here they found well the class warfare really doesn't work but if you throw race into it oh boy you can stir up the entire United States and we'll have ourselves a communist nation real soon well that's right and it's something that I'll be talking about in my book that will be coming out early next year is the background between what we know today as critical race theory comes from, like you said, the, a group of very frustrated German Marxists of uh, the 1920s who wanted to uh, merge a new version of Marxism with a, a kind of a Freudian postmodernism, which is a fancy way of saying they wanted to tell everyone that they were either oppressors or the oppressed and that really there's no truth out there that we can hang our hats on and that we are in a world that we just kind of define based on our experiences. And what critical race theorists, as you described there, added to the mix is that everything must be seen through the lens of race or from the perspective of ethnicities. And, of course, in the United States, that's such a sensitive topic because of all that has happened from you know the origins of, of slavery in the United States to the Jim Crow era uh, and beyond, that has touched something really very personal in, uh, in so many Americans. And so now we find ourselves really wrestling over whether critical race theory is appropriately describing things for us or whether uh, this is uh, really a nation that provides freedom and opportunity for everyone. And of course, you know, the answer is clearly the latter. And, um, and I know that the, you know, the origins of critical race theory go back to Marxism, but the, there is one word to describe what it is, and that is discrimination. It just is. Yeah, you know, we have come so far as a nation, but all of a sudden now, uh, with the division and the leftism we're seeing coming out of the Democratic Party, uh, the Black Lives Matter, the Antifa, the Occupy, uh, they were doing anything and everything to divide us uh, so that they can introduce socialistic and communistic ideals. And I always questioned, and I, I, I've been saying this since day one, how much influence does the Chinese Communist Party and Communism in Russia influenced these ideals and pushed them through not just government, but through corporations and our education system. Well, as you scratch down you know, beneath all of the uh, verbiage and all of the jargon that critical race theory poses about uh, justice and what they call social justice and, and these different ideas of how they are just trying to even the playing field, you realize that what's really going on is that they want to actually raise up some people. They want, they want to make it an unlevel playing field. They want some people to have more advantages, which means that others would be punished or face sanctions just because of the color of their skin. But what is it all pointing towards or what is the ultimate end? 
and it does go back to economics. I mean, it does go back to um, this uh, this idea that that capitalism is uh, based on what you earn, right? It's based on meritocracy, and that is utterly rejected by critical race theorists. They are pushing for uh, something that would um, have the government create. E- that's why they use the word equity, right? Equal outcomes for everyone, which you can only produce equal outcomes as a government through coercion. You can only do that by pushing some people up and pressing some people down. And so that is what, you know, that is the sort of very toxic brew that critical race theory has devised. You know, as I called it, you know, the capitalism removal training program um, is so far true, you know, but what is the point? It would be one world government, one world dominion. And so that's why we're seeing the communists, putting money into our universities, our colleges, uh, now the K through 12 with the Confucius schools. Uh, Fortunately, we've got uh, Senators Cotton and my Senator Tim Scott that are proposing legislation to demand if there's any foreign money coming into the education system, these universities and stuff, you've got to let us, you've got to tell us how much you're getting, where is it coming from, who is it coming from? What is it for, and what are you actually using it for? Well, certainly, and we don't even have to. I mean, you, you're right to point out what's going on with foreign money and what universities are, are trying to do, and sometimes obscuring what the facts are about uh, who they're, um, you know, where they're getting some of this very large grant money from. But uh, you don't even have to go. I think that far. I think all we have to do is look what students are saying today on campus when they protest speakers, for example, that, that come to campus, when they write these letters demanding different things such as um, free laundry soap and uh, free housing for, uh, for students, you know, based on um, just based on the color of their skin in some cases. Um, and, and when they shout, you know, when they shout speakers down, like uh, there was an example just last fall when, or sorry, it was two two years ago now, when at SUNY Binghamton, so the State University of New York, you had Arthur Laffer, who is an economist and has advised um, uh, policymakers on both the right and the left, got up to speak and the students, a group of these student protesters, rioters, uh, disrupted the event, shouted him down, and chased him off campus. And that's just, you know, that's just one of many examples that we could point to. But they use these words like the administration is killing us. I think that was what one of the, the student protesters said. Uh, or they use terms such as decolonization and that the school needs to be decolonized, um, that it, it matters what the color of the skin of the people who write textbooks is and not the content of that material. You know, all of those things, right? This is all evidence of critical race theory's effect on the way that people behave. Now, the worst part is, is they have it in our public education system, not just the public, but now it's creeping into private. Because at one of my Tea Party meetings, I had a couple walk up to me and they said, well, they had put their child into the Montessori school, which is normally considered an extremely conservative you know, school. And they said they were teaching them about gender fluidity and starting to teach them critical race theory. Then they said, we thought they were going to get a classical education, not this. Where can we send our child? 
And this is what is happening now because it's now coming into the private sector. You're most certainly right. And I, I mentioned my book earlier. One of the parents that I interviewed as I'm writing it is a parent of a Montessori school or was a parent of a Montessori school child. She's since pulled the, her student out because there's a group called Montessori Schools for Social Justice or something or Montessori Teachers for Social Justice. And all of their ideas are, are based around this concept that we have to focus on the color of the skin of the kids in the class. And they're devising lesson plans accordingly. She talked about how many of the teachers met in secret and didn't tell the parents. And the changes to the school's policy around what was taught happened before many of the parents recognized what was going on. Uh, and, you know, you can look really at some of the largest school systems in the country as well, right? Like Washington, D.C., I, I came across just, just this week a, um, a, it was a teacher preparation document that said that teachers needed to, again, this whole idea of decolonize the curriculum, and they needed to look at the textbooks and then make a chart, and they needed to put how many uh, authors from different races were, uh, had written textbooks uh, in, in the school. And so they make this chart based on the color of the skin of all the different authors of the textbooks. So not the quality of the content, not how well it's taught, not you know, how it's, you know, where else it's being used and whether students understand the delivery, but the race of the authors. And uh, again, they're example upon example. I mean, now just quickly, in Iowa City schools, where the governor, um, in the state where a governor has uh, actually signed a proposal that rejects critical race theory in the classroom, in Iowa City, there is a whole lesson on the district's website about white privilege, which, by the way, the lesson comes from uh, Teaching for Tolerance, I think, which is a group that's an offshoot of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So, I mean, on and on, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of examples, and it's, it is worth going over the very specific examples because those on, on who are supporting critical race theory now are saying, no, 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 schools aren't, aren't teaching critical race theory. They're saying, no, you've got it all wrong. Now, that's not what they're doing. And they're saying, you know, that there are no real examples and it's just a figment of our imagination. So when we can find things that clearly show that this is what schools are doing, it is worth bringing it to the public's attention. Last thing I'll leave you with here is um, there is found on YouTube a meeting of critical race educators. That's what they call themselves, a group of critical race teachers uh, in Portland, Oregon, who had a whole, their whole meeting was broadcast on, on YouTube. So they didn't even deny wow. the term, right? They didn't even try, try to hide the name. Wow. Now, because uh, when uh, Tom told me that you were going to be the guest on the show, um, I turned around to my uh, school and I said, you know, um, do, are we teaching CRT? He goes, he texts me back and goes, well, I'll check with the school superintendent. So he comes back saying no. And then he sent me from the South Carolina uh a school supervisor, Molly Spearman, a letter that she wrote stating unequivocally that they will not be using critical race theory. It has no place in South Carolina schools and classrooms, she wrote. The South Carolina Department of Education has no current or proposed standards that include CRT concepts and will not be adopting any CRT comments, standards or applying or accepting any funding that requires or incentives the adoption of these concepts in our classrooms. So she's saying, well, even if the federal government says that they want to promote this, 
which Joe Biden has already said he's going to provide funds for the schools. She's saying we're not taking the money. Um, and then on top of that, here in South Carolina, there is a bill, H4325, that was proposed just last month. It had its first reading in uh, – and it's been referred to the Committee on Education and Public Works. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get my state representative on this because I don't see her name on the bill. That says unequivocally that we will not be teaching anything um, in the public school districts, public schools, public institutions of higher learning. That direct or otherwise compels students to personally affirm, adopt, or adhere to tenets of critical race theory. Or um, they, they say about nothing to do with sex, race, ethnicity, religion, color, or national origin. So they're saying even if you recall something else, if you're doing these things that promote um, bigotry, then no, it's not going to be coming into our school system. Well, it's good to hear, and it's always good to hear lawmakers and policymakers you know, say those things. But I think what's going on is that you um, – it's, it, is, it is not always the case that a lesson that teaches critical race theory has critical race theory in the title. And I think what we have to recognize is that it is a theory, right? It is a, it is a philosophy, um, a perspective. It's a whole body of work. And so it's, we have to watch for the ideas being included in coursework. So you can say something's not critical race theory, but yet still say, put students in affinity groups where you break them up by the color of their skin and provide different lessons or school content uh, for them. I mean, that's very clearly a discriminatory act. Um, or you can have a lesson plan that teaches about white privilege or white fragility, and that, of course, is also from critical race theory. Anything that says um, that you know, meritocracy is a fraud or that colorblindness is actually harmful, right? all of these things, or that America is systemically racist, I think that's very common is instead of, instead of calling it critical race theory, there'll be a lesson that says America is systemically racist. Uh, so, for example, the New Orleans Parish School Board adopted a resolution saying as much last summer. So, you know, you can, you know, we hope, right, that, uh, that we can shine sunlight on these ideas and, and show that and say, look, this is discriminatory content. And, yes, you can call it whatever you want but it is most clearly a part of the critical lexicon, the critical theory lexicon. And um, so it's, it's one thing, I think, to just say it's not going to be in there. It's quite another to actually to look at the content, look at what students are being taught, and, and make sure that none of these discriminate, discriminatory ideas are included. Yeah. Well, matter of fact, here in South Carolina, you're allowed to go to the school district and see what the books are, what's inside those books. You just have to make an appointment to be able to do that. A lot of states allow that. So, you know, it's up to the parents to physically go to the school and say, all right, show me exactly what the materials are. The problem lies in when they try to hide it from the parents or from the guardians. Um, or even just a taxpayer. The taxpayer also has the right. You don't have to have a child in the district. You are paying taxes into it, so you should know what your tax dollars go to. And it's, it's important that we also attend the school board meetings to see what is being said there, too. That also can give you a hint about what's going on behind closed doors. But right now you have teachers being told by principals, don't put it up on the website. Don't put it up on social network. Don't 
send it home with the child. So that way the parent has no way of even knowing what is being done. How do you get around that? Well, and that's a great question. You raised some great points because there have been states that have adopted proposals just in the past year. Uh, Utah is one. I know Arizona has considered it as well. Um, North Carolina has considered it too. Um, And these are proposals that say that a public school must make its lesson plans and curriculum available upon request. And so it's nice if a district says, sure, you can come see our textbooks. Just come between the hours of 9 and 5 during any school day. Well, that happens to be when most parents are at work, and it's not, not quite as convenient to drive all the way down to the district office. And given all that happened during COVID-19, it is obvious that schools can deliver content online. So there's very reasonable to expect that if you ask for the list of the textbooks, um, even, you know, syllabi, if, if teachers have put those together, and uh, different lesson plans before they wind up in a child's backpack, that the district should deliver those, right? Schools should be showing those to, teacher, to, uh, to parents when they ask. And so state lawmakers should be considering, you know, proposals, um, you know, such as this that, that um, provide this very important level of transparency. Yeah, I can't believe the show is almost over. Holy cow, the day has just flown past. One of my pet peeves, I always ask this question and no one has yet answered it. Um, Why is the school meal program, uh, (laughs) you have kids that their parents are receiving um, welfare, food stamps, and all these other things. Now, they're getting the food stamps so that they can have three square meals a day. So why aren't they taking those same food stamps to the public school to pay for their meal in school? Why are they instead proposing that all students get a free meal? Yeah, now that is, is another huge boondoggle that Washington's been working on for many years. Uh, what, ha- what originated in the National School Lunch Program was the idea that Washington would provide resources to schools where they had high percentages of children from low-income households. And it was meant as a way to help students who quite literally did not have food at home. And they would at least be able to find a meal when they got to school. Now, what has evolved over the past, you know, 60, 70 years is, and especially in the past 20 years, is this idea that we should just provide meals to all students because it's so hard to figure out who's eligible and who isn't. That's what the advocates of this say. And they, they have said that because it's tough to keep track who's on, you know, SNAP or, food, or you know, who's on food stamps, uh, who is on um, other sorts of, uh, like, WIC programs, those kinds of things, um, that they just – we'll just make everybody eligible, and that'll be easy, and then all the fraud and, and misspending goes away, which, by the way, that fraud and misspending is not negligible. It's not zero. In fact, the National School Lunch Program is one of the, um, has one of the worst records in terms of federal programs when it comes to misspending. There's a, um, a tracker called paymentaccuracy.gov, which, of course, is run by the federal government, and it tracks the programs that have the highest number of errors in terms of uh, services delivered to people who are not eligible. And the National School Lunch Program and the School Breakfast Program are two of the top ten worst uh, and we're talking close to a billion dollars a year uh, that is misspent. So, you know, mm. this is um, uh, something that 
really has, has escalated, especially in recent years, because under the Obama administration, they made efforts to expand the program, right, provide, you know, provide it to more students. And the way that we need to, dis- to, to, to ask taxpayers what they think of this is to say, do you want to pay for middle and upper income children to eat for free in school? Because that's what this is. You're not helping any more low-income children when you expand access to the National School Lunch Program. You're not, you're not helping more low-income children. You're helping the middle and upper-income families uh, by expanding eligibility. Uh, and by not taking care to be uh, more specific about uh, what the process is of signing up for the school lunch program and receiving services, um, you are just furthering this, this boondoggle of a federal program. Yeah, and then who pays for it? Oh, oh, gee, that's right. You, the taxpayer. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. To, well, Taxpayers are, yeah, are on the hook for it, for sure. So, you know, what, they, they no longer mail actual little stamps for food stamps. It's a WIC program. It's a, a credit card. You could go into any store and use it like a credit card. So you have one for the kid. You hand the kid the WIC credit card and say, go to lunch at school. Here's here's your lunch money. It's the WIC card. So how hard is that, Jonathan? Well, I think that there have been some uh, ways that we can improve the the um, uh, certification process. It's called direct certification for students who are from low-income families. There are online ways that you can confirm that a child is from a family that is you know, below the poverty line, meets the criteria to be receiving services. And so by improving these direct certification programs, uh, you can uh, uh, more accurately determine who's eligible and who's not. What's going on now instead is they're saying, well, we're just going to let every child uh, access a free meal. It's sort of a, a complicated scenario developed under what's called the Community Eligibility Provision, CEP. And it says that if, you're, if you go to a school where a certain percentage, so 40% of the children are eligible for free meals, everybody's eligible. You just give it to them all. And then if you happen to be in a district where if you average out all the uh, children who are eligible for uh, services and the average hits a certain number again below that that forty percent mark. Uh, you can just give it to everybody in the district. So you can have a school which has a very small number of low-income children, and then another school, you know, on the other side of town where there is a much higher number. Why you can give it to all children in the district, which, by the way, is not helping more children from low-income families. It's providing free services to middle and upper income families. Mm-hmm. Well, you got a new book at, coming out next year. You definitely have to make sure you send that to me autographed, and then I'll have you on specifically for that book. We'll do a separate segment for you for that. I definitely do that. I'll have a lot of fun with that one. Uh, but you're with the Heritage Foundation. People can find you at heritage.org. You're the Will Skillman Fellow in Education. Education's, as a matter of fact, you cut your teeth here in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and uh, right now, Molly Spearman is doing a great job um, I had helped try to help Sherry Fuse to get that job. She didn't, unfortunately. But uh, I don't. Did you work up there when Barbara Nelson was the uh, school supervisor? 
I think I was just after, and Mick Zace was uh, the superintendent around the time uh, that I was there, and it was it was right as he took uh, assumed the office. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Barbara Nelson's a friend of mine. She lives over here in Hilton Head. Uh, and I sent another friend over to her that was having a problem with the children's section in our local public school having inappropriate books in the children's section. <laughs> so <laughs> she's helping us get that ironed out. Thank you for the hard work. And you know you're always welcome here, John. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to being on again. God bless. Jonathan Butcher, check him out at heritage.org. Curtis, the show just flew. It absolutely just this flew. Sure did. Oh, man. Yeah. And I enjoyed oh. all the speakers. Um, you know, I, I really liked the guy that was talking about, you know, the credit, things like that, because a lot of people are in debt and stressed out and they don't know what to do. So I'm going to pass that information on. Yeah. Now, right now, my cursor is not working on my other computer. What the heck happened here? Oh, well. All right. Well, we're going to be back here next week. We started lining up uh, guests already, so we've got two slots already filled for uh, next week. And uh, I've got people calling me asking to come on the show. So, yeah, and starting in July, Epic Times or the Epoch Times, either way is correct, will be sending us Mark Tapscott twice a month just to fill us in in what is going on on the Hill. So with that, I will leave everyone with when the roll is called up yonder. So I'll see you all next week. And I say good night and God bless. And